welcome to uh, episode 19 of Movie Mumble, our monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where we seek to broaden our cinematic horizons. I'm your host, Scott Murray, and today I'm joined by my friends who are I, I, are, are definitely regular men and not machine men, I hope. <laughs> I feel like I made that joke about Blade Runner already, maybe. Uh, Joel Lewis <laughs> and Tim Gerard. Hi. For those of you unfamiliar with Movie Mumble, it's a monthly podcast where we get together, watch a film, then talk about it. And that's it. There are no rules. The films can be old or new, foreign or domestic, things we've never seen or things we know well. It's it's really all about that the experience of watching a film is enriched by watching it with people whose company we enjoy. Uh, after we've watched each movie, we talk about it, and then we just see where that goes. We let the conversation flow. We might talk about the film, about its context, or about just something completely unrelated, which, which happens sometimes. Uh, at the end of each episode, we announce what we're watching next month, so you can sort of watch along with us as you like. Uh, and we won't bother with holding spoilers for anything. Um, There's to say, we won't go out of our way to spoil films, but we also won't bother to cover them up. So if a particular episode has a film you're concerned about spoiling for yourself, please watch it before you listen. Uh, this is the beginning of our seventh cycle of films. Seventh and final. <laughs> no. no. Oh, Joel, why would you do that? It's not even April. Just jinxed us. No April Fools or anything. Gosh. Um, just it's it's this is, we're gonna we're gonna reach our twentieth. This is episode nineteen. It's kind of a miniature landmark. Uh, this month, Joel picked the film for us, and uh, he brought us 1927 Metropolis. I'm sorry, the film is called Metropolis. It's from 1927. Yeah, I shouldn't shouldn't rearrange terms here. Uh, easily the oldest film we've had on the podcast. Film. Our first silent film. I, I suspect this will remain the oldest for some time. Because even my old films that I have on hand, the oldest of them all is uh, 1930, All Quiet on the Western Front. Nice. So I, I don't think we'll... Uh, I think my next pick might be older earlier than this. Earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I guess I have to look up a couple of the other the other German films I have on hand and right. take a look, but I, I doubt it. So, uh, first German film, first black and white. Well, no, not first black and white, because Lahaine was black and white. Yeah. So it was pie. Ah, and you... So it was pie. And so it was pie. That's right. And this not is the first from out of necessity. Right. <laughs> this one was not deliberately... Yeah. Not to be And I was going to say <laughs> not first German, because I've watched a lot of German films, but I realize I haven't brought any of them to the podcast mm -hmm. yet, despite talking about them <laughs> constantly. Um, so... <laughs> That's probably not going to happen next episode either, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, uh, as always, we do a coin flip. The movie selector flips a coin. Uh, the next person to choose, which this time is me, calls it in the air. And uh, the winner, between the the, uh, the people who didn't pick the film, gets to decide who gets to slash who has to describe <laughs> the film. Uh, Joel brings us this beautiful silver dollar, except today he brought us an equally beautiful 50-cent piece. I, I think I actually kind of like this one more. I, it has more character, I yeah, think. I've yeah. always been a fan of them. It's a Liberty Half Dollar from 1960 with Ben Franklin on one side mm -hmm. and the Liberty Bell on the other. I like it half as much as the other one. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Four bits. No, it made me laugh. <laughs> and only Joel. <laughs> Joke for an audience of one. <laughs> All right, Scott, call it in the air. Tails. It is Tails. Oh. 
I kind of make Tim no. <laughs> Fuck you, Joel. Well, okay then, Tim. God go damn it. I was gonna say I wish I lost this, I feel like but you... I didn't want to pick. But okay, I, I felt was, like I was undecided. To. Okay, so <laughs> I'm glad to have the decision made for me by either by losing the coin toss or by Joel deciding. I don't mind. <laughs> I like hearing your voice, and I like hearing you <laughs> stumble through <laughs> stumble through a description of the plot. Okay. <sighs> So, okay, it's 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 a sort of um, see, and I'm, I'm unclear as to, as to whether I should refer to it as a dystopian future. And I mean, maybe all dystopian futures are not dystopian for everyone. You know, it's 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 very much like like oh, I feel like a... dystopian kind of draws in the term where like the world has been destroyed, kind of like post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is kind of like, I mean, it's 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 kind of parallel to our time now. There's two obvious classes. There's a rich class and there's the class of people who live, you know, under the earth, which, you know, it's not it's not from a sense of like um, you know, there was a great catastrophe and now we're living off scraps. It's the people in power have sort of gradually pushed the people not in power lower and lower and lower. And it's just kind of like, that's just society, you know, like that's not like um, you know, when you're watching something like Mad Max, for example, like, oh, there's a shortage of resources and everyone's yeah, yeah. fighting over the them. Apocalypse has like, happened. Yeah, yeah, like this is just like, no, this is just how the world has naturally evolved. This is you know? that sort so, of split world dystopia that you get in like Hunger Games. Right. Right. Yeah. Or like you know, like nineteen eighty four or equilibrium, you know. Yeah. Oh actually equilibrium didn't seem I didn't really see a, a lower class in there. It was more just the people who anyway, not talking about that film. <laughs> it's like a less than ideal Future, mm-hmm. wherein things are manipulated to a certain extent, whether it's technology based or not. Elysium like, yeah. comes to mind. Mm-hmm. The space yeah. station yeah. Powers, yeah. Yeah. Um, very much, yeah, sort of like an us and them kind of thing. Was I feel like with yeah with with any of this stuff that I uh, like, I guess. Well, I guess you know, yeah, maybe maybe plenty of films that you could still consider yeah dystopian would have that upper class who's living just fine. Yeah. and everything's okay so anyway so that's the main point is that it's not like everybody's fucked like as always the rich people are, are doing fine right um and it's just the people who aren't rich who are fucked so <clears throat> there's the working class who lives underground work 10-hour shifts um you know very very mechanical like okay make these machines keep working um and what was really cool was watching those scenes how how like machines the people seem themselves you know the, the, the people who are keeping the machines going their their movements were very like clockwork very repetitive uh very you know not necessarily in exact sync with people around them but you definitely got the sense like like different gears turning at different speeds they weren't turning together but the repetitions were happening at their own rate um and the rhythm was yeah synchronous with the music too and the right. idea of them yeah ping-ponging across yeah yeah so definitely like just kind of hammering home that whole like yeah these humans are just cogs in a machine you know like they're no more than that you know they go their city is underground even so they take these giant elevators underground um and uh the was it the son of the guy who's basically running everything this school teacher comes in with a bunch of children when he's kind of laughing and flirting in this this garden with the peacock and you know this sort of utopian setup and um uh and actually now that i say the word utopian it kind of like maybe that's sort of my 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 point earlier is that like to me like when you refer to a world as dystopian it seems sort of the 
the opposite of a utopia whereas this world is both simultaneously like the rich people are living in a utopia and it's only the poor people who are living in a dystopia right. so maybe that's sort of like the distinction as opposed to like i said the world is destroyed for everyone you know mm-hmm. um it's, so anyway it's interesting that and i will come back to this but <clears throat> i want to say it before i forget that that films in which there is a utopia and dystopia and people are split between them mm-hmm. almost always get called dystopian films and mm, to be yeah. fair, their plots largely focus on the people in the dystopian end of that mm-hmm. that world. But right, yeah, we'll come back. Yeah, please. But it's, yeah, it's almost like it's they're in a dystopia only because the other half or the other one percent are in a <laughs> utopia. Right. You know, yeah. the um, cost of utopia, right. all those u- right. resources are being applied to that one percent. Right. So and that's what causes the dystopia for the ninety nine percent. Anyway. So, so he kind of and and it was He's really in his Garden of Eden there, right? Yeah, and there's definitely this this big um, this big theme that that recurs, like you know, him grabbing his chest, him like clutching his heart, like like oh my god, these these children, uh-huh. you know, and the and the teacher who brings them up there refers that you know you know that, like the the brothers and sisters, you know, and and I think it's the first time that this this character gets the sense of like oh yeah we're all people and you know i'm i'm living here and they're there but it's it's not right that they should be suffering and he kind of goes into the human city and he wants to see the machines and where these people work um and ends up you know um like (laughs) like most people do i think when they have this sort of big um revelation and become disillusioned you know runs to his father like oh hey like i'm gonna tell my father and he's gonna be like oh shit i didn't realize the world worked this way you're right we should do something about it instead of just like no like that's that's how the world works like i'm up here in my office barely moving with people around me sweating and all scared that i'm gonna fire them at any moment and those people are down there making the machines run so we have all the shit we need you know so the brother decide. i mean the son decides to go down there and like swaps places with uh, one of the workers. Um, that was the thing I noticed with this film is it was interesting to see, you know, um, how I'm, I'm going to assume things drew inspiration from this because right. it's so old. But things like the um, what was it, the Prince and the Pauper? Right. I mean, I feel like that's a fable that's probably older than this. Yeah, film. no. So there was there was a that. little a little bit of that in there. Yeah. Like, hey, we're going to switch places. He changes clothes, so this guy gets to go up and, you know, go live as him for a while while he stick you know the son of the 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 ruler for lack of a better term you know he he gets he runs the machines for a while and gets to see what it's like to work a 10-hour day or probably even still less than 10 hours because it's just like he came in the middle middle of that guy's shift so it's like you know and he's he's you know this is his first time doing it he realizes like yeah this is this bullshit like the people shouldn't be living like this um actually one of my one of my favorite parts in the score was that uh so the 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 worker who he sends up there ends up going to this nightclub and a few scenes later he's like coming out of the nightclub the next morning and it's the first time in the score we hear a saxophone and it's just like so like just so perfectly matched this sort of like hey i was out all night at this casino with these ladies in this club and it's just like there's the saxophone like okay and i think that was the only time it was used through the whole score too but it was like perfect it was just like it's like moments like that where i want to be like a film composer you know where it's like yep oh i got the thing for this yep (laughs) so so anyway um, such a typecast instrument yeah, <laughs> yeah. I want to play something that sexy man it was I may have said this in another podcast but I was reading a book about like these two film composers where you know this one composer had he was telling another film composer about this time he scored a sex scene um, in some movie and he showed it to the director and the director was like you know this this scene isn't about love it's about sex 
so then the other composer was like, you added saxophone, didn't you? He's like, yeah, I added saxophone. <laughs> 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 that little composer shorthand. Yeah. It's like, they're not in love, they're banging saxophone. <laughs> Um, that's why there's no saxophone in Top Gun. <laughs> that's why there's no saxophone in the volleyball scene in Top Gun. <laughs> because it's love. It's implied. <laughs> it's all love. All of it's love, Joel. Well, I'm thinking of the saxophone cue in Blade Runner. There's so much that Blade Runner takes from this film, uh-huh. and that is specifically part of it, too. <laughs> um, so... Where does that leave us? Okay, so Prince and the Popper. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, so then it kind of came to like this this really great moment of the um, the the sun kind of going down and real and see, finding out that all the workers go to this sort of like underground these old catacombs beneath the city at night. And it's like, what's this all about? And there's um, and they hear about this this woman who kind of like you know it's like you get this sense of like okay, is it a cult? Is it some kind of preacher? Some kind of you know you don't really know if there's religion in this world yet you do kind of find out about that later so it's like maybe religion has been done away with and that's sort of what they're going but it ends up being the uh the teacher that he sees at the beginning and he's kind of been like searching for her this whole time too like oh my god like you know she opened my eyes and she's beautiful and like kind of leaves the girl he's with to go after her so he's like oh i found her and it's this great moment for him um and she started preaching which which was kind of really cool the first you know the first inkling of this sort of uh religious metaphor that comes up in the um in the film where you know she's talking about the idea of you know the people at the top basically being the head and they had to hire the workers who are the hands to sort of make their creations and you know that the the issue and the disconnect is that the hands don't understand what it is the head wants and you need the heart to sort of be the translator so you kind of almost get this sense of like okay this kind of god and humans and then this sort of this this christ-like idea of oh the son of this guy who's the head of all this stuff has to come down to where the people are and work with the people and right. he's representing the heart which is sort of communicating between the head and the hands and letting the people know oh, this is what my dad has planned for us. So I was like, okay, I, I see that. I see what you're doing. And um, there are also some parallels, and I have to look further into this, but like um, uh, Wagner's Ring Cycle, which is, you know, kind of pieced together from a lot of the, I don't know uh, the, the what the term for like the, the, the German um, um, like like mythology, like with Wotan and, and, and all that. And, you know, Siegfried, like that whole realm of that story. Um, I, I forget what the, you know, um, like what the, the term is for that sort of world. I don't know if it's Norse. I feel like that's slightly different, but there's still some parallels. It's like a there. Germanic mythology. Yeah. That kind of. So yeah. so anyway, so like that whole story, I was I was kind of drawing some mild parallels with that, which I thought were kind of interesting. Um, but I don't know the the whole story well enough to be able to kind of um, catch everything. But anyway, so. Um, Oh yeah, at some point we're also introduced there's this fucking mad scientist who somehow <laughs> lost a hand oh, making right. a, a robot person and you're like, "Oh, okay, like Rotswang. I thought I kind of knew where this was heading, but I guess not. Okay, here's this other thing and um yeah, Rotwang, so that was uh kind of gross. Uh, and he had a robotic hand which kind of, you know, makes you wonder like was there anything else on him that was robotic? Um 
he because of the rot. Yeah, yeah. You know, rotted <laughs> okay. off. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> Bill's eyes shifted between us, and I was like, I need to jump in here. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I was thinking we were going to go subtle for the first time in podcast history, but we did not. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the fun in that, Joel? Where's the fun in Um. So yeah, so you find out there's this whole thing where like the 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 mother of the the, the son character, like I guess. There was yeah a love triangle between this mad scientist and the father of the kid you know the the, the kind of the ruler um, and and she died like giving birth to the son so like he had this kind of like this 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 grave this effigy to her you know and and but then also he was like oh I also built a robot of her which he then refers to also as a machine man. I don't know if that was a lost in translation I, thing, you I know. I think it might have been like automaton or that, yeah. right, android. Yeah. Machine person. Yeah, or it could have just been like robot. Yeah, or right. like android. It but probably that man was the, neutral, yeah. the more general term at the time yeah. and then maybe translation too. Yeah. yeah. Depending. Um Mensch. Yeah. So so yeah, so that was sort of a new thing that that kind of came into this like okay, that's here's this android that I've seen on the cover of this like this is how that plays in um which is another kind of like the the idea of another drawing from an influence the idea of the Frankenstein mm-hmm. the built man right built yeah human mm-hmm. anyway yeah um god I'm and I don't even know if I'm done the prelude <laughs> there's a lot of setup for sure yeah so okay let me try to let me try to spin this home <laughs> so the, the 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 main conflict ends up being you know the, the the father is kind of angry that his son is kind of down there you know mucking it up with the low lowlifes and you know um, kind of realizes that okay you know finds out about this woman who's who's telling all these people like you know and, and that's sort of the, the one of the things too she's basically telling this group of people that like hey you're, there's going to be this this savior this this heart this this person who's going to be able to mediate between you know the head and the hands between the higher ups who are kind of forcing us to do all the labor and you know our demands will be met everything and he's like well i don't like the sound of that so we need to fuck up her plan so tells the mad scientist to um or i forget if he tells a mad scientist a mad scientist comes up with this but like oh i'll make my machine person look like her and have her say a bunch of fucked up stuff and you know kind of make this whole thing crash and burn um which I thought was kind of weird watching it because, like, you know, the whole time, and then, you know, he's like, yeah, don't try to stop these people, you know. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll jump back. I don't want to skip ahead to that part. So anyway, so, they, yeah, they capture her. They use her to kind of somehow scientifically, like, apparently science back then was done with a lot of electricity and moving levers back and forth mm-hmm. and, like, bubbling water. I don't know if it was boiling, but it was definitely bubbling. Um, so all of Movie that stuff, science. yeah. So all of that stuff somehow led to this like machine person looking exactly like uh, Maria was her name. Um, so they put Mar- the the android Maria out there basically to rile up like all the men in the upper class, and they kind of oh, there's a part too where the son is kind of at church, and there's this reference in the Book of Revelation about like oh the woman sitting on the dragon and Babylon and all this stuff, and kind of oh here's this woman who's the epitome of 
all that's evil that's kind of heralding in the apocalypse. And then they basically dress her and have her do exactly that, like recreate that imagery so that it's kind of like, oh, look, this person that this group of people thought was actually, you know, telling them all this great stuff about this, this savior guy who's going to come, you know, she's, she's actually, you know, the, the, the evil woman from, you know, Babylon from the Bible and that's heralding the end of the world. So, so we got to get this scene of her, you know, doing this sort of snaky like dance kind of thing and riling up all these men, um, which, uh, and that was one of the things I think we did discuss earlier, we can get into more later, sort of that, that, that power dynamic of, of men versus women and kind of how that's kind of portrayed in here. Um, but I'm sure Joel, you have more to say about that. So I'll let you handle that. Um, but um, so then and then she also goes down to the the people living under the city and it's just like, yeah, let's go destroy all the machines. And they're like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then somehow like the, the, the leader of all this is like, yeah, don't try to stop them from doing anything. And it's just like, I mean, you're the ones relying on these machines too. like they're giving your city power and clean water and and you're just going to let them go destroy them. Well, his like, initial plan was if violence was incited by the the lower class that he could respond with violence without with a clear conscience. Okay. So she she doesn't give the propaganda he plans for her. Oh, to. that's right. It was because the, the scientist, scientist was the says one. you need to have them destroy the machines. Okay, that's So it, it's it's like double plot. Double yeah, cross. that's right cuz he was yeah, double double crossing him. Yeah. So so double dutch triple crossover. Oh shit. <laughs> so so why did he tell like that was it the thin man or whatever oh you know don't try to stop them from from doing if you know if they're going to do violence don't try to stop them at one point he like tells him like to let him just do Good what they're happen. doing yeah, I don't know what his, his methodology was at that point. Or, yeah, maybe that was more like you said that just that he thought they would do violence against people. Yeah, right. and it was like okay, now you did this, but yeah. So anyway, so they end up going, you know, destroying the machines, and it starts like flooding their underground city. And luckily, um, you know, a handful of people, you know, the Maria included, as well as the the son, are getting the kids the, the children of all these people up out of the underground so that they don't drown and they end up getting up and they're safe and in the meantime we keep cutting to these scenes of all the workers who destroyed their machines like kind of holding hands and just like dancing around like yay we did it we destroyed the machines and then at one point someone's like hey where the hell are your children and they're like oh that's right <laughs> and then they freak out and then they see the real version of maria who's still alive and they're like, oh, she's a witch. She was the one who told us to do this. And then they go after her. But then luckily they end up catching the robot version and burning her at the stake instead. And um, it gets revealed as a robot. Yeah. Like right. luckily. Yeah. So, that you know, the son is like freaking out and yelling for her. But then he sees like, oh, it is just a robot. And then he ends up fighting the mad scientist and winning. And then there's this great scene at the end where it shows like this one worker who kind of represents all the workers, like, you know, the foreman, I'm guessing. And and the you know the father the guy's father and the two of them are kind of standing facing each other and then that's when maria comes up and kind of repeats the idea of like okay we need you know the heart to mediate between the mind and the and the hands and then that's when the son kind of comes up and steps in between and takes each of their hands and joins their hands and it's like okay this is how we're going to rebuild a society where you know everybody's kind of working together where you have you know the smart people coming up with the ideas and then the you know the people doing the work to get it done but they see the reasoning for it not just like do the work and then shut up and go back underground like ideally we're hoping that they'll get some of the benefits of their work as well you know um <sighs> <laughs> that was metropolis 
So to, was... to slightly derail immediately, um, <laughs> and, and uh, to talk about more broadly about utopia and dystopia, there's great, you know, you already mentioned, there's dystopia like Mad Max. Mm-hmm. Everything sucks. Mm-hmm. And then there's this mixture where there's utopia and dystopia in the same world, you know, Metropolis, Hunger Games, etc. Mm-hmm. and we focus on the dystopia. But there's, every so often, there's this this thing that gets presented to us in film or television or what have you as a dystopia, even though everyone, every character in the place, it's a utopia for them. Every so often, we'll get something like that. It's like Brave New World. Well, basically. sort of. I mean, Everybody the natives, the natives. Sort, of, sort of keeps Brave New World in the category of split world a little bit. But yeah, a little for the bit, most yeah. part, yes. And um, Well, it's only when they interact where the uh, native landscape becomes a hellish la- yeah. landscape. It's only in the interaction of those two, which sure. is not supposed to happen. Sure. But, like, I I think more recently of a, uh, an anime I saw called Psychopaths. It's a crime, sci-fi crime TV series, and it's excellent. And it's this... The whole thing is that there are this computer that's networked everywhere, and it scans people somehow and figures out how likely they are to commit a crime. Okay. And then... Like Adjustment Bureau-esque... Uh, kind of, yeah, and then assigns them a number based on that, and like if your number gets too high, like you get a little note from the government to like please report for some therapy before you get too high, and we have to send police after you, you know, mm-hmm. and and um, you know, f- and then similarly, that whole computer system decides your future. Like you spend your whole time being educated and raised in it, and at the end of your tests, your exams, when you finish school, it picks a job for you that you like and are good at and contributes to the function of the society. All it meets those categories right. together for you, it presents you options if you have them, and like for to watch it as us sitting here in 2019, it's horrible because there's this conviction of people before they've even committed any crimes based on the idea they might, you know, and there's this set in stone job career. It's awful. Everybody I've ever met talks ever talked to the show about, they always call it a dystopia, but every single character in the show is happy. Yeah, I don't There's know. There's almost to... no crime. Everyone yeah. loves their job. <laughs> their, you know, life doesn't have a lot of, lot of difficulty. Everyone has resources. Everyone, is, mostly. I mean, things happen in season one, and yeah, right. yeah, it's a TV show. But at the beginning, yeah, it's a it's a utopia. Period. Like basically, end of sentence. And right, it's 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 a utopia until it malfunctions, and then it's not. I mean, and that's, eventually. That's the thing yeah. where, I mean, that's in an equilibrium when you're taking your pills to suppress your emotions. You're going about it fine. You're you're, you're yeah. happy, See, right? But that's why yeah, ignorance is a big part of that right. utopia. It's the same or most utopias, the, probably. It's the conditioning in Brave New World where you are bred genetically to accept your mundane lifestyle, mm-hmm. and you don't aspire to anything above that. It's it's physically impossible for you to Because that's what I mean about it. It's only our perspective that turns right. that into a dystopia. You know? Yeah, and it's 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 this process by which it is made into utopia that right. makes us squeamish and grossed out and scared because it's like if we that is conceivable. We have technology that wouldn't have to go that far to get to that level of conditioning. And because we're we like the freedom that we have and the 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 imagination that we're allowed because we don't have those dampeners. That that's where it becomes dystopia for us. So it's it's dystopia by way of free will perspective. Right. Exactly. Right. So I just I I like to 
sort of mention those three yeah, different categories, no, sure. if you will, of dystopian film. And that's the thing. The, the main difference with Mad Max is that Topia is like society, right? Like, mm. whereas in Mad Max, post-apocalyptic is a different construct where sure. there are people in power for a certain, in a certain Sections sense, right? But like, areas, but yeah. humanity on the whole has been yeah. decimated, and like, it's it's rebuilding from. Whereas I always see utopia or dystopia as proceeding from events as they yeah. have. There's you get, no you get the, the everything sucks dystopia, right. the splittopia, right. the utopian dystopia, right. and then the notopia. Notopia, <laughs> yeah. Post-apocalyptic would be notopia. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. I guess, yeah, thinking of that as an additional category, yeah, that there's right. like a cataclysm that sort of threw everybody on at least at first a level playing field until we get this kind of survival of the fittest you know and now there's 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 a new definition of what fitness is you know now oh well money doesn't matter anymore so that kind of knocks those people down a peg and now it probably has more to do with physical strength and weapons and things like that and And i mean like that's kind of planet of the apes would probably be more post-apocalyptic from a human perspective but for the apes it's it's, it's yeah. a utopia because right. they've moved into the yeah, higher functioning. Yeah, you're right. I wonder if in general any excuse to talk about Planet of the Apes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if in general, like not <laughs> like not for the sake of the story, but for the sake of a world, like is it possible to have a utopia, a utopian society without it functioning because of a dystopian society? Mm-hmm. Because like in a, in a utopian society, like who who takes out the trash and, and cleans the sewers? You know, like you need to have a bunch of people that are doing that stuff, and I don't know that those people would consider themselves to be in a utopia if that's their job. So or I think you, you know, there it's almost yeah. like yeah, it's this that that whole like the star and the the um, the black hole circling each other kind of thing. You right. know, like one needs to feed off the other, and like yeah, you, you it's it's almost like yeah, you can't. I mean, I guess you could have a dystopia without a utopia, and then in which case everyone's life sucks. But I don't know. I feel like. Most films like that, we as you know, as you were mentioning, yeah, with like a game of, I mean, um, uh, Hunger, Games. Hunger Games and things like that, there's you know, yeah, you level. do kind of define, yeah, there's an upper level, so it's like, oh, those are the people who have the utopia, and that's why we have the dystopia. And like, I was actually going to use, I, I started using Equilibrium as an example, then said, well, no, but then I think it, it kind of is, but it's in that sense that the people living in a dystopia part of the society don't know that they're in a dystopia because they've had those emotions removed you know you know there are definitely the people who are at the top who kind of get more to do what they want and they're the ones dictating what everyone else does but it seems like a utopia and maybe that's the main trick is like tricking people into thinking they're in a utopia when in fact they're in a dystopia was the was the ship in wally pretty utopian i don't remember enough about the film to know if there turned out to be you know, those janitors who were cleaning up the trash yeah. somewhere well, in the bowels robotic. of the ship. Everything is yeah. Because I was going to say automation would be your answer there, right? Yeah. And and in the case of Wally, it was like yeah. everyone, like there's your utopia, you know, without the dystopia that it feeds off of. Um, although it has its own its own problems, yeah. of course. Well, I mean, that was the thing. Even with this, like there were machines, but there were people who had to keep up on the machines. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like I mean, I guess if you made better machines that needed less upkeep or whatever um or no upkeep or whatever yeah yeah i mean i guess like that's what's what's that whole the self-lubricating joke and Wait, here's this ball it just gives off energy it's made of metal it gives off energy what do you how long does it last like forever 
<laughs> you put, do you put energy in it? How do you recharge it? No, just just works. It's like it's just plutonium, right. but it sounds fake. Right. You know, it's <laughs> like no, it just nah, heat light. Here you go. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Because just that that idea of oh yeah, a machine with no upkeep. Like well, I mean we saw it in Wally, you know, our right. animated children's film. Right. But not nothing else. <laughs> yeah. right. oh, okay. And see, what was sinister about that is that we got to see the perspective of the robots who are, I mean, they're, they're, there's nothing sinister about it because they've seen the, the, um, the last thing from the president of the, the corporation saying, hey, there's never going to be anything here ever again, so you are in complete control from now on. So it's, it's following that direction. We see it as sinister because we know that Wally has found something that's growing is bringing it to the ship so everybody could come back. Like that that's where this where it moves from utopia to dystopia is that the mechanized the mechanism for keeping that is not necessary anymore. Well, it's not flexible enough to take on the new information. Mm-hmm. And it was built that way and so that that's where that kind of goes off the rails. <laughs> rails. <laughs> the space rails. <laughs> Well, I, I think this is another way too. Like as I was watching it, I definitely saw a, a bunch of stuff, stuff that I think inspired the Wachowskis for for the Matrix, and um, you know, one of them is when you know we kind of see the human city, which is underground. But in that sense, it's 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 sort of like not the the same. I mean, there is that sense of like, yeah, the machines live on the surface, and then the humans live underground. I mean, I guess it is similar in the sense that yeah like humans would like to live on the surface now you know but there's the threat and the, you know it's it's too cold up there um but then also you when they go down to the engineering level in that scene um and you see all these machines kind of working on their own you know kind of like you were saying scott oh this mm-hmm. m- perfect machine that doesn't need any upkeep right. and we so just we kind of have like a person who needs to run it and work themselves to death on it you know, right it can just work yeah. yeah and that's sort of you know kind of they also make the connection of like oh well these machines are keeping us alive all other machines are coming to kill us and it's like you know that sort of the you know the, the disconnect of the consciousness well like these machines aren't conscious and you know they are they are working and and it would be you know probably much worse if the people living in zion had to go down and work these machines and upkeep them and everything right. but but yeah you just i mean granted it was at night so maybe there are people who work during the day to like do maintenance and things like that but you know they go in the middle of the night and there's just no one there it's like oh look that one's filtering our water that one's giving us clean air so you know there's that that sense of yes beneath the surface there's always there's always a machine lower than you that's doing work for you you know um so i thought that was that was one of the things i kind of thought was really cool i mean aside from the whole like oh we need this one who's going to come in and mediate between the upper class machines and the lower class humans and you know and like you know kind of neo having that same same kind of role of the the christ-like figure of the film but also that he's the mediator you know he is kind of part machine he was put there by the machines to do a task you know but he's also human so he can kind of be that go between and um but so anyway that was an, yeah that was another thing i kind of latched on to i was like oh i could talk about the matrix again because it has something to do with a new movie we're watching that's the thing i don't think modern sci-fi at least in film doesn't it, it doesn't exist without this film because i mean the the architecture is something lifted straight into blade runner like Did you say architecture on purpose did I do it? Yeah, no, I heard architecture. I heard, oh, I heard maybe I just architecture wanted to works. But architecture, too. especially cool, for this, because number. it's not built most of it. Like there were <laughs> right. backdrops and stuff. Yeah. So like this texture of architecture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just like the idea of the pyramid shape 
and the idea of this central hub and kind of cars and people moving like electrons through a cell like just that is so well captured and like it really sets sets you in the place the standard even seeing you from the perspective of 2019 watching a 1927 film it looked like the future and yeah it's it's that retro futurism and like it really reminded me aesthetically of some of the Batman animated stuff. The sort yeah. of Art oh, Deco, yeah. Yeah. for sure, yeah, Gothic Art Deco mixture and yeah. plus technology. The, the place that looks both like 1960s and the future and 1860s. <laughs> <laughs> that was something I thought they captured well in the Gotham TV show, where it's like yeah. they had old ass TVs, but we're also using cell phones. I was like, what fucking right. year is this? <laughs> Gotham is a dystopia, for sure. <laughs> Nobody's happy in that yeah. world. <laughs> the city of Gotham is a dystopia, no matter what other world it's in. Yeah, right? no, yeah. For sure. Everything else around it just grows and thrives. And it's just Metropolis is, yeah. the, is the utopia. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. yeah. There's your, uh, uh, there's your star in your black hole. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So I, I first watched this maybe two or three years ago, and it just came out of a desire to see it. And, like, had, I think I just watched this YouTube version of it, yeah. which is the complete. Yeah, so, which, so yeah, we, the whole film is on YouTube, start yeah. to finish, because it's in the public domain, mm-hmm. restored, restored, and the, I mean this this film has a really put back in and, yeah, well, it, for as much as they could find because it has a very, it has a longer uh, cut and edit history than Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the the most recent was they found the footage. You said in Argentina, Joel. In 2008, yeah. I was reading. Yeah. They found that well, really recently. It... Yeah, 2008. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A 16 millimeter copy um, that no, was a copy of the, the, the original 33, right? Was it yeah, 33? larger, I don't know. <laughs> Which was so bad, like, it was so dirty when it was copied that to restore the film was impossible. That's why we got those the graininess of those frames is because it was... The, the grit was copied with the film. So, so the missing parts are put in, but they're still dirty and small, right. and, and there are a couple parts that are still, still missing because right. they were just too ruined on the 16 And they're just misplaced yeah. with the black, like, narrated, this is what the sequence... You really only had been. to do that, like, once, though. It seemed to me... It's, it's like two... Twice, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, twice. Yeah, yeah the fight with... Because the font The changes. conversation yeah. with uh, the father and the, the yeah. outside the window, and then the... The, the monk in the temple. And that's something I really... Like, I, I read that originally um, before seeing it the first time because they kind of have a frame of, like, this is how recently this was restored, how long yeah. it took, and all that stuff. But the first time, I didn't really process the, the jumps between. But then since, yeah. I've watched the, the documentary on how that process worked. So the whole film, I'm like, well, that was cut out, so why was that cut out? Who, and it was cut out because... The, for the American market, and it's unclear whether it was a censorship issue, or just from an editing making, it or a critical reception issue. Right. It wasn't the most well received at the time. Which is, well, it would be terrifying. Yeah. I feel like this is yeah, one of the so earliest. Did they recut it to try to make it play better with audiences? Right. Did they recut it for censorship? Did it's, they recut it, was, it for time? Bits and pieces for all three. Right. And it's like a twenty-five minute. That's how much was so. I mean, that would have made it two hours, which it could be just at four times. Three hours, you mean? No, it's it's two, (laughs) it's two and a half hours long. Oh, oh, right. So you're saying without it would have been without it. Yeah, Yeah. without it would have been two. Yeah, because we watched the. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. 
I initially thought this movie was three and a half hours <laughs> long, which was incorrect. It's only two and a half. Um, and so watching it the first time, I was just, I, I, I was saying this before the podcast, the idea that I have to remind myself how to watch a silent film. Yeah. Because you feel like there's a gap, like like almost like your ears are buzzing because there's no dialogue going on. There's no atmospheric sounds going on. So watching it's like, okay, I want to make sure I'm awake for it. I don't want to fall asleep in front of it because it's just orchestral music. and that. But like it took, the, watching this film for the first time, it was like the f- fastest transition from actively watching, like making myself watch it to it just becoming a movie after like very slow time, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So instead of like, this is a silent movie, you have to pay attention. This is a silent movie, you have to pay attention. It was just like, this is a silent movie, pay attention, and then I didn't have to be reminded the whole rest of it. Because it's so dynamic, it's so expressive, and so much is conveyed visually, separate from narration. Like, those, the interstitial narrations help, but the whole yeah. story is told without them. They, they're almost yeah. superfluous, and it was just, it doesn't waste any time. When we see yeah. the, the throngs of the, the workers going in and out of work in sequence, Heads oh, down. Man. It's just... So that's the most beautiful and powerful imagery. That's the, like, there's an anecdote of somebody uh, in a concentration camp going in. Yeah. And he turned to his buddy and said, Have you seen Metropolis? Because yeah. this looks really familiar. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, it's so eerie and so prophetic mm. of, of how Jews were treated. Like, it, it's, it's crazy. And seeing those... It doesn't waste any time. You see, that's like the second sequence you see. And Say like any good sci-fi, twice. we're now talking about was this prophecy or, you know, did this predict the future or did it In help words, create it right. or was it coincidence? Right. Like any good sci-fi, we, we maybe we'll never know. Right. And the, the sequence when uh, Frieder, I think that's how you say his name, comes down and he sees the, the big staircase up with everybody in the little dial, like, mm-hmm. moving with it. And then... He sees it explode, and then he has this vision of like a Mayan temple with slaves being pulled up into the gaping maw, the maw, and yeah. the the churning of those mandible like uh, levers mm-hmm. as teeth, and just like gave me nightmares. That's what gave, I, I introduced this film before as a film that gave me nightmares from 1927. Mm-hmm. That sequence is so terrifying it's, it's so dreamlike it's, too yeah you've had dreams like that right. <laughs> you know it's so easy to just and i uh, slip into it it was like that week i had dreams where i was on on that like walking those catwalks up and the, the mall or the mouth was up there just devouring it, it just was so powerful so quick mm-hmm. and it, it just did not let up and it, it just accelerated because it, it's like a slow build-up you get all these images and all these things and it and as it goes towards the end, it kind of crescendos up and is really dynamic by the third act. Like, Yeah, yeah so this is, uh, uh, I mean, it's a really famous, well, it's a really influential film. Its fame is waning a little, um, I guess just by age. And it's one of those things where if you try to look into film at all, Metropolis will come up. Yeah. But like, if you haven't bothered, then you won't have heard of it mm-hmm. in that you know as opposed to something like Citizen Kane where you'll have heard of it no matter what right. even if you haven't bothered to research but um, uh, directed by Fritz Long German 
Um, co-wrote by him and his wife, I believe. His wife, dic- he dictated it to his wife, who transcribed everything. So okay. there was a little bit of a collaborative process, okay. with especially with the ending, because mm. Fritz had in mind a more depressing end <laughs> yeah. rather than a sentimental one. Because I, my first Fritz Lawn film was M, and they co-wrote that. Gotcha. Pretty, pretty strongly from what I've read. Um, gotcha. But yeah, so he he did a lot of films. He did these these interwar German films, and then he came to the United States. He did a lot of uh, American films. He did shifted into noir very well. Mm. He worked with a lot of famous actors. Again, it's one of those like why why don't people talk about him and Orson Welles in the same breath? And maybe just because of how things go sometimes, or maybe because he started and finished his career in an earlier time bracket than Orson Welles did. Yeah, that's probably or, true. Or or what have you? Maybe the age is just catching up. But um, M was his first uh, sound film. Oh, okay, um, and that was until now was the only one of his I'd seen mm-hmm. and it's uh, a sort of proto-noir it's also excellent but uh, I, I don't know necessarily whether the similarities here were just consistencies that hold across that particular German film movement mm-hmm. or consistencies that hold across his body of work uh, but they're both absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. uh, I will say in terms of silent film I didn't I've seen a couple, and I didn't have a difficult transition, and I think it's because of all the, well, a lot of the early talking films, but also, through to this day, a lot of live theater still sequences its visuals similarly to silent film. Because in silent film, you have two characters, and they mouth to one another and gesture, you know? And then you stop for a moment and read what they said. Right. And then you do the action. So when action is happening, dialogue is not happening because right. in silent film that was necessary. Mm-hmm. In a lot of earlier talking pictures and in a lot of theater to this day, it's still very much like that. The characters will stand and talk or maybe they'll stroll and talk or walk together or gesture grandly. But then once things start happening, once people start running and cars start driving and drama starts happening, that just happens. And then when that's over, you go back to dialogue. You know, it's very segmented. Mm-hmm. And that... Every time I watch a silent film, I'm reminded of theater, of a lot of theater. Probably, I think because of that. Um, just because that, that, that tempo feels familiar. Mm-hmm. Well, you said, what other silent films have you watched? Uh, the Artist was my first. Right. Which was, you know, new. And then um, I, there are two others, and I, I can't for the life of me remember them, because they were both in classes I was taking. And I've I've sort of lost the. I, I can think of all the talking films we watched, Dr. Caligari and M, and a bunch of other German expressionism. I can't. Western Front was talking. Um. I, we saw like half of a Chaplin film, Chaplin silent film, but not the whole thing. So I guess if that doesn't count, Do then I'm more. down to one. Uh. With the building falls forward and he's standing in the window, because we dissected that shot and talked about his impact on stunt work. I mean, that could be God, right. I, that's just that's the part. It's I also a Buster Keaton. Right. I'd say, yeah, that's just yeah. That's the part I remember. But, but yeah, just there was this, and again, it, that holds true even into the early talking films because that's just how things were done for that whole yeah. block of time. Gotcha. And I've watched a lot of those. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, it's a certain familiarity that made slipping into the silent film a little easier than I expected it to gotcha. be. What about you, Tim? What silent films have you watched, if any? Or um, any? I've seen Nosferatu. Okay, yeah. 
We can um, talk about that for sure because that's German expressionism too. The uh, yeah, we watched God, a couple was... of scenes from that, but I not even knew the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, um, God, that was that was back in my blockbuster days. <laughs> Yay! Uh, yeah. <laughs> See, um, yeah. cycle seven. Yeah. We're still doing it. <laughs> it's such a big part of my life. Um, <laughs> the joke is aging like milk. <laughs> <laughs> um. I'm trying to think I, as like, opposed to wine where it gets better Scott no it doesn't no, look like wine yeah. that's the thing it's <laughs> <Yeah, that's> better <laughs> uh, um, I have an aging milk story for you but <laughs> not now Later. you'll be Patreon uh, <laughs> content oh my god <laughs> if you want to hear Scott's spoiled milk story give us five dollars you, you don't don't worry <laughs> it's not a good story yeah. um, I mean I, I don't remember much about it because it was like years and years and years ago and I I was probably a bad student of film at the time because I I, I kind of remember I think that you know because that was my first silent film I remember it was just kind of really it was kind of hard to watch you know because um, I think I was like looking at it from the perspective of like oh this is supposed to be you know really groundbreaking and creepy and you know and I had a harder time when I was younger appreciating things for their time um and uh i remember kind of yeah just kind of like like kind of like you were saying like oh before I, I have to remind myself this is the silent film before i fall asleep and i think it also at that point i had seen like the the you know the dracula with um gary oldman and, right and, you know and and you know kind of i was trying to sort of use what i remembered about that to kind of guide me through right. the plot because you know i wasn't used to a silent film and not having the kind of the the, the constant uh, dialogue to carry you through what's happening. Um, I feel like that's a movie that becomes more and more difficult the more versions you've seen of it. Because I watched probably yeah. Recently, I watched Bram Stoker's Bela Lugosi's, and then uh, Werner Herzog's Dracula Tales. Oh, okay. So, in and the more you watch it you're like this is such a long story just get to the vampire right yeah like and once you see uh what's his name in nosferatu he's max a real, shrek max shrek great fucking name mm -hmm. like, yeah wow it, so much so that they stole it for batman returns for christopher walker's character <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but just like he is creepy and everything's about like you're mesmerized by him and mm -hmm. it's these slow moves and those kinds of things. And that's where it's the money shot of the, all of those films is Dracula's interaction with people. Yeah. But getting to that point is so tedious and long. Um, and it's interesting having watched Werner Herzog's most recently, I was saying that that one felt particularly long, but it, it felt long in the silent movie kind of way. Mm -hmm. I was thinking rewatching this, it'd be great. And we don't have any remakes of Metropolis, the way we do Dracula mm, or right. Frankenstein or any of these. Like, it's not quite horror, but it's horrifying. Yeah. And I think it'd be really interesting to have had a Werner Herzog version of that because he would have captured that German expressionism, the the claw, the the cyber hand, mm -hmm. just like that that guy's a great <laughs> character like really yeah. compelling from the get go and mm -hmm. really sinister Dr. Rothwang <laughs> yeah sorry I interrupted oh no I didn't have much to say about it that was that was pretty much it, it was just kind of like oh yeah I should watch this silent film and it's about <laughs> vampires and I like and it was just kind of like 
oh man this is the hardest vampire movie i've ever watched you know and, um it was neat too i think one of the things that was cool i, cause I bought the dvd and i think it had like two audio tracks right. one of them was like the original score and it was like performed on organ i believe because I, and i don't know when that was made but at the time like i think the score was performed live right. while yep. the movie was playing so it wasn't even just like recorded with the film right it was like you know someone had to sit there and like play it fresh every time which i thought was really cool and then the other one was an alternate score by some band uh it was probably some sort of like 80s goth band or something it's like oh this is terrible and i just stopped it um i mean i get the idea i get that you know sort of stuff like this kind of inspired a whole like culture right you know and and you know the, the style of music grew out of that that then you know created another subculture and then their music you know and like but um I guess not being part of that culture, it was really, it, there was a really big disconnect, you right. know, like, like to not be sort of in, engrossed in like, oh yeah, this is the music I listen to. It'd be really cool, you know, to kind of bring this back to one of the origins of music like this and kind of insert it in there. And it just, it just felt like very like separated by time, you know, and, and, and I don't know that it was necessary. Sh I shouldn't say that it's, it has to do with the, the genre because maybe a different band or a different artist would have done a better job mm -hmm. of kind of, you know, being able to maybe more closely replicate like the type of, you know, I feel like it, it'd be possible to use maybe like maybe modern instruments, but still sort of capture what about the music made it dark, you know, as opposed to it was just kind of like this very pop music kind of thing that was, you know, sure dark maybe compared to other pop music but still just didn't seem like i guess dark enough for the subject matter i don't know maybe you know again maybe like if a band that i already liked had done it maybe i would like the score better just because i like that band or if a band that i didn't care about had done a better score maybe i would have appreciated that better i don't know but i did not like the alternative See, score. now i'm wanting a, a <laughs> metropolis score done by rush because oh they would fucking kill it. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. See, I would. No, I, yeah, I, I would want to go through their existing music, kind of like what I want. You know, well, I shouldn't mention this idea that I me mean, and my cousin have for making a Rush musical, but uh, <laughs> but going through and piecing through existing music of right. theirs, like kind of the way they did for Moulin Rouge. Like, oh, here are all existing songs that we're gonna paste together in a collage right. to fit this storyline. I I no, I, I think that'd be great. And that comes from someone who isn't doesn't really like Rush. Mm -hmm. I almost all their music falls flat for me, except for Tom Sawyer and the Twenty One Twelve Suite. Mm -hmm. But just the Twenty One Twelve Suite oh, is yeah. like yes, like yes, get them to do Metropolis. Like, just put that on Metropolis. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That'd be great. Oh, sure. um, yeah, absolutely. I've been I've been sitting here racking my brains trying to think of the other silent films I've seen, and now I'm wondering if I've even seen an entire other silent film, or if I saw them in parts because I I so just to, to make some jumps I took a film about the uh, United States occupation of Japan after World War II and we did a lot of study about the popular culture produced in Japan under occupation uh -huh. including film right. like Kurosawa I did an entire class about fascism which also included a lot of study about the social flows and currents of the times including the examination, well, propaganda, but also popular films, right. an examination of a reflection of what was popular and what wasn't, what people wanted and what they didn't, and what the artists were making. To, 
Um, and then I did an entire class about Holocaust films throughout history. And I did a class all in Europe all about European films focused country by country by country. And then I did, and I just, I'm, I'm, I've so lost track of what I saw where and when that maybe just a bunch of those classes included chunks of silent films. I've never actually sat down and watched one. Did you see Battleship Potemkin all the way through? Not all the way through. I see. That one we watched The Massacre on the Steps like 20 times. Right. As well you should. Yeah. (laughs) But we didn't watch the film. Gotcha. But I, so I'm, I'm losing track. Is, is Shan Andalou silent? It's not, is it? I think it is. I see, I can't remember. And that one's only like 24 minutes long. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that one's, so okay, yeah, we saw saw all that. (laughs) I just, I don't know, I'm just losing track. And Illusion Dog, which is a Salvador Dali created. Dadaist film. That, yeah. Which, but just, yeah, I, I hope that made sense, my explanation no, from thing sure. to thing to thing, how they yeah. all blend together into, what did I see when? Right. <laughs> you know, I, a modern film will stand out. Right. I saw, I can tell you I saw Mystery Train and a Chinese film called Chunking Express in my first, first class that was film-based. But gotcha. I, for all, almost all the others, I... See, know. with the exception of this and Nosferatu, probably my only experience with silent films have been Chi- Charlie Chaplin ones. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because Modern Times deals with a lot of the same industrial fear and mechanization of the lower class. But it does it in a more... like the, There's a point in which Chaplin goes through the belly of a machine to fix it. And he's incorporated into the mechanism. So it's making the same point. It's maybe ah, 35 was modern times, I think. So, But he, he does it like Chaplin does, where it's he's, he's Life, fun. It's, 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 yeah, it's, lighthearted. It's, it's comedic. It's, it's making so. a commentary, but in a palatable way. So, But yeah. this is like, hits you in the face. And there's <laughs> it has a very sentimental ending. But up until that, there's very little hope, you know? Like, so it, it's... It, but the other Chaplin films, I mean, it, it, they're all making kind of these nuanced commentaries on the working class. Because, I mean, his, his chosen avatar, the Tramp, is a working class person, jack of all trades, master of none, who's never in work and always hungry. So it's always about generating these different things. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just interesting subject matter and something that's easily relatable to and, and easily portrayed in silent film. Because I think about some of his other work that it it was just sort of a comedic presentation of the problems that people face day to day. Whether that's the farmer who can't get his cow to give milk or the guy who can't catch the train or has to work the machine. Right. Like they can be industrial or agrarian or whatever, but right. they're sort of they're just here are the obstacles we face and I'm gonna put a put a spin on them and stick them on a screen. And, and see, the people he was poking fun at were the people in power. It's yeah. always, or, I mean, the establishment, it's always him running from cops the for of things, a right. misunderstanding or from the aristocracy because he's somewhere he shouldn't be, in quotation marks. Yeah. So it, it's, silent film has a great way of presenting them because you, you, I guess it's, they're easily recognizable, right? High class looks like high class because of what's, how they're, like, their accoutrement, what they're wearing, how they right. present themselves—they look clean. They look clean, and I, I mean, th- this has a really good d- distinction between lower and upper class because just the dirt, right. <laughs> like that's something that was great in all of the shots of people holding things up to the camera. Their hands are just black with oil and grime, mm-hmm. like just 
is really effective that way. So, this is modern times, but less fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny that that there was such a visual. Film and television have this visual shorthand that was developed in the years of the films we watched, and then just sort of held steady through all of film history. You know, the the mechanic has greasy hands and coveralls and a rag and a wrench. You know, the the rich man has a suit and a cane and a hat and some jewelry. You know, there's this this these little visual cues that just immediately tell us what we're looking at. We just talked about that. No, yes, <laughs> but. The problem is that now that so much has moved digital, we're really struggling to find new ones. You know, the hacker has to have, you know, cargo shorts full of, like, wire ends and little cutters and, like, glasses and, mm -hmm. like, a Junk large soda. around his station. Right. Like, <laughs> what we've been struggling now, because so much is less visible when you're looking at the workspace, you know? What's on the screen might be different. You know, maybe the, the computer builder opens the case and the computer programmer taps on the keyboard, but to just get this character at a glance while they're not in the middle of their job is much more difficult nowadays. Yeah, I mean, Nedry is not, in Jurassic Park, is not modern, but like, he, no. I mean, he. But that's you know exactly what he it is. there, is they, 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 they gave him this, these body language and visual cues mm -hmm. that made him what he was. But. That certainly doesn't hold true now, and even at the time was really a bit of a caricature. Um, yeah, well, I think that's the thing is we're trying to move away from certain stereotypes now with with characters. Like, oh yeah, the one who's the computer programmer has a bunch of junk food and is fat. You know, mm -hmm. so it's like that right. was sort of the way to, to typecast him. But now it's like, well, it could be an attractive woman who's a character. So you know, there's a almost almost like they want to have a separation between how a character looks and what their what their role is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's. It, it's fighting against the medium in that sense, like sure. it, because it was it's so dependent on visual cues and telling a story with showing rather than telling. Yeah, and you get that inherent problem of they're trying to move away from the stereotyping, which is good, but then they're finding themselves with fewer tools of their own with which to tell stories visually, right. and they're struggling to make up that ground. This is a sequence in the uh, the Chaplin Bilo pick with Robert Downey Jr., which is really good, worth a watch. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. Um, where he they're moving into uh, talkies and he doesn't want to if the tramp speaks he's no longer magic he loses his identity he's going to have my voice and it doesn't match so he's trying to figure out how to convey the impression of wealth to a blind character on screen and he's like how do we do this without speaking without presenting this because she's this uh, blind flower sales girl and she mistakes the tramp for this rich person so there's how do they do it how do they do it and then on frame what they do is they there's a, a expensive car and she hears the door close and assumes uh, it's the, the car door the yeah. tramps car so that that i mean it's it's something that they've been playing with even that early is how do we convey this because we know that she's blind mm -hmm. the audience will know that she's blind so how do we tell this story so the audience also knows that She's not seeing the visual stereotype of wealth, yeah, or hearing it, but that she's put these two pieces together, right. but not quite the way they right. are. Right? Yeah, that's interesting. That's the thing. Film is constantly trying to make itself flexible enough to represent reality in mm -hmm. a way that is believable and readily identifiable. But now it's doing it 
trying to do it responsibly on top of that as we're moving yeah. towards a more and then there's, woke there's a, society. Um, we were, a brief discussion we had earlier based on that video we were watching about refer, uh, representational cinema and experiential cinema right. that will sound help things become much more experiential just overall. Right. You know, but that there's been a little, a bit more of a deviation not deviation. I guess just that the two are become more distinct from each other, but that they both continue to exist. And yeah, they have some of the same problems, but in completely different ways. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which is what um, I guess that that's sort of the crux behind the impact of the Saving Private Ryan beach landing. That uh, if you look at the actual film footage we have. Of troops landing on, and we do it's out there you can go find it it's on some of it's on YouTube it looks nothing like Saving Private Ryan right. but what mattered was that Saving Private Ryan felt like what it felt right. to be there so it was experiential mm -hmm. not representative but then that you they had their own problems of how do we bring that across and they used you know the, the camera shake and the the water across the screen and the, right. the ringing in the ears and you know they found solutions to that Well, I mean, I think that's part of it too. I think with every like obstacle is kind of what breeds innovation. Mm -hmm. So I mean, if we if we don't have sort of like an evolving society which requires films to kind of meet these new standards, like why would it bother trying to find new and interesting ways to tell a story? You know, um, you know, and, and I think sometimes too, I, I think it depends on the type of film you're making. You know, if you're trying to do something that's a little more um, like mythological, for lack of a better term then you probably do want a lot of symbolism and you want things that are more clearly this represents this, you know, like white represents good, black represents bad, you know, this, you know, and you're kind of relying on sort of like a heavy um, visual representation because you're being more broad about what these things represent or the fact that just they represent something in general as opposed to okay, here's some film that takes place in New York. We want it to be realistic. We want it to be representative of the type of people who live in New York. So it's this more more diverse collection of people. Oh, and and like, they had you know, so many tricks. I We watched The Naked City, Joel, which we yeah. shot on location. And I, I mean, we assume a lot of the people who are just in scenes are just New Yorkers going about their day. Mm -hmm. But um, the Kurosawa film I saw in my class about Japan and yada yada was um, One Wonderful Sunday. One wonderful weekend. It's about a couple, and they spend their weekend. And um, one of the things that the American occupation censors didn't want in film was they didn't want the films at the time to show the extent of the occupation. Yeah. So you were limited to how many Americans could be around on the streets right. in your shots, or yeah. how many signs could be in English, or whatever. And actually, as it happens in that film, I don't offhand don't recall any Americans or very many. And there are whole shots of train stations, yeah. full, packed to the brim of people going to their workday, and not a single American in sight, because Kurosawa filmed at night. Yep. He just showed up at 2 a.m. with a bunch of floodlights to make it look like day. And it wasn't just that film. He did that for Oh, yeah, I mean, for many of his films, he had to yep. work around that censorship. Certainly, I just the train station yep. scene from that in particular stands no, out to sure. me. But you could look at that and go, oh, yeah, look, it's all Japanese people living in Japan. But... That was not at all representative of the reality of the situation right. at the time. So for The Naked City, which is older than, I think it's older than Kurosawa's work, um, filmed on location in New York, we might assume there's no New Yorkers in those scenes, but we don't know. Right. <laughs> because we don't know what went on outside of the frame. Right. 
and uh, it's just it's it's sort of fascinating how how much what goes on outside the film impacts what ends up in it and then impacts the perception yeah. you know like sort of film speaks to to a larger physical space than the one you're seeing well the, that just makes me think of uh, Urban Cowboy the famous uh, oh who is it Dustin Hoffman line I'm walking here when he smacks on the cab yeah that's just shot on location and that dude almost hit him that's an ad lib yeah. one of the most famous <laughs> walking here that's I mean it, it just by virtue of life impacting film in that way, mm-hmm. trying to capture an experience, and an experience happens. Yeah. Like, that that's something unique to film. I mean, I guess you get that in, like, recording sessions, like a riff comes out or a solo and those kinds of things. But Yeah, and if they're willing, then, yeah, there yeah. you go. I guess On the other hand, if they go through enough hoops, like in Kurosawa's case, to set things yeah. the way they need to be set, then you'll never get that. But that's the thing, like I with with a meticulous director like Wes Anderson, that scene never happens, right? No, I'm right. walking here doesn't happen, <laughs> right? Right. <Yeah. laughs> well, you know, and I think that like part of that too is I think is is part of the evolution of film. Also, stuff like that may not happen have happened in silent films because you know everything has to be so well choreographed right. so that you're telling this story very specific. I mean, d- don't get me wrong, like if that had happened and someone hit the hood and yelled something sure you get the impression of what happened but I mean like you know and, and like the way you compared it to theater you know there's so much more with with blocking and staging because mm-hmm. you have to tell this story without dialogue right well we have dialogue now we have extreme close-ups we have where you know you can just you watch a person's over. face yeah you can watch a person's face cry for however long you want you can't really do that the same way in theater at least I mean I'm sure you could if you wanted to depict someone crying you could go about it a certain way where they're portraying that to the audience you know effectively but like not the way you can just sit on someone just like still you know and, and watch their eyes change as they start to gloss over and, and redden and the tear you know like we can do things like that we can get more into the the minutia and like really you know uh, you know get these fine details f- through through many means you know so we yeah i feel like it doesn't have to be it could still be a a visual media but without mm-hmm. medium but without having it to have to rely on uh yeah like the stereotypes or the or the archetypes even i mean you know not to not to put the word stereotype and kind of give it a negative connotation but there are archetypes archetypes, you know that that represent certain things like and i think that's the thing is a lot of times people are trying to actively break out of these archetypes and be like i want to tell a new story or a story about regular people not just people who represent a certain type of person you Mm know um like this one person who is you know uh, vastly different than every other person you've seen on film because all those other people on film are trying to appeal to a massive amount of people whereas this person is probably going to only you know, appeal to a, a few because they're, they're dealing with something that a lot of people either have never dealt with or if they have dealt with they don't want to admit that they've dealt with so you know but you know but a lot of times those, those very complex things can't be portrayed through like oh we'll make their hands dirty or we'll give them this haircut you know it, it goes beyond that and we really need to live with that person and mm-hmm. see who they are beyond those things so I think yeah I think it's just a way of adding, adding more tools to the box of tricks you know you can have a scene that relies on symbolism you can have a scene that, that breaks stereotypes and archetypes you can have a scene where 
no, we need the actor to explain exactly what's happening because what they're experiencing is so complex. We can't do it with you know this color else, or this, yeah. these clothes or whatever. And then on know? the flip side, the addition of sound has given the visuals room to expand a little bit. To not expand, but to giving them some extra weight. Mm-hmm, right. Um, yeah. There's a scene in Metropolis where it cuts over to the one character, and a single tear is rolling down his cheek. Mm. And in this, it's the equivalent of, "Oh, I'm sad," you know, because that's just that's how we communicated. It got communicated to us. Ah, we see. He feels badly about this. But in a film, if the character isn't wailing or sobbing, if we just get a shot of their still face and a tear, the lack of sound gives it so much more weight. Right. In a film where they could have chosen to right. use sound, you know, mm-hmm. it, it sort of helped enhance the thing, you yeah. know. Help. I think you used the word refine, Tim. I, I liked that. Maybe yeah, you sure. could put me in mind of it if you yeah. did. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just it really refined everything very mm-hmm. nicely. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, like it creates a lot of these nice contrasts too. You know, yeah, like like it's going to stand out more if we're focusing on the visual. If so much of the film focuses on the auditory experience, mm-hmm. and then boom, here's this landscape. Yeah, we're going to pull the sound out of it because all you need to do is look at this right now. Um, you know, which yeah, so it's so it's nice that you can play with all those pieces that you have. You know, you can create a part of your film that, for all intents and purposes, is a silent film, and then go back to dialogue and you know. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of weave in and out of all these different stylistic things. And... I wanted to talk about, um, just kind of switching gears a little bit, the importance of gestures in this movie. Mm. Yeah. Because we see, the first sequence we see with his father is, <laughs> these guys are mime- miming, like really... Tim clutches his chest right. dramatically. And that's the thing, like, I mean, German expressionism is about the gesture being everything. I might be speaking out of turn, but it seems to be that from someone who's only watching these things. But so it's the first time we see Joe, who is the the um, father, the, the brain, right, the stand-in for the brain, the executive leader of everything, has so much power in his gestures that his son comes in to try and tells him this thing. He holds up a single hand and it like the mood in the whole place changes. Everybody stops and um and his son catches Frieder the door. stops it yeah. from slamming. And then he lets it go and then everybody goes back. Like just the the power of that and you don't even see his face. And he's very no. stoic for through most of the the movie. Like there's very little emotion that he shows. But there's very like he has very specific gestures that carry a whole lot of weight. And again, back to um, Rotwang, how he treats his monstrous arm, arm and how he 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 moves yeah. through scenes. It just <laughs> he seems a different kind of creature because yeah. he is a cyborg at that point, and he's he's this unrequited love of someone who's passed away who gave birth to someone else's son, like, this whole... All the emotion seems to be just bleeding out of him in every gesture, and he, he becomes this Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein character, caricature. So I just thought that was really interesting and something... I mean, you, you get those touchstones of the clutching of the heart, and that's something that you see from Maria and from Frieder, and that allies them. They, they have that that commonality and then you have gasping obviously and horror and those kinds of things and it it conveys emotion in a very intimate way but also in like an exaggerated way i kept noticing with 
Jehoshaphat, who is the um, kind of lackey of Joe, who gets fired, and his interactions with Frieder, how close they are, and the intimacy of their, you get a sense of more than friends. There's probably by, some homoeroticism. sensibilities we yeah, do, for sure. No, for sure. And I think that might have been something in the editing that they might have taken out, because they looked a little too friendly for that sensibility. But that's a whole another thing. Just the inter- the idea of the two-shot in this movie, where two characters are in mm-hmm. close conjunction, they have a whole lot of energy, like more so than any... I mean, Ron Howard talks about the two-shot as conflict or camaraderie like it conveys a lot just putting two per- people in a frame that's why I'm sitting across from both of you <laughs> but so to convey even more in some of the earliest examples of a two shot is is really interesting and plays with those dynamics in a different way than I've probably seen in many modern films because mm-hmm. that that the personal space that they in, in encroach on is something that makes you kind of uncomfortable here but they're because it's not freaking them out, there's an intimacy there. There's a, a, a relationship there, and it conveys that. So. Yeah, certainly. Um, it almost kind of gave me unity of purpose, a camaraderie. Yeah, sorry, yeah. please, Tim. No, no, it just like it, it, what was funny was it almost gave me the sense that like of you know Josephat kind of being interested in him but him kind of being oblivious and having this comfort where he's like, hey, yeah, man, I'm going to talk to you. And, like, he would always get really close to his face. But I almost never... Like, yeah, I remember saying that one point. Like, like these two have almost kissed so many times. Yeah. Like, huh. they're that close. Yeah. But but I never, I guess, got the sense that that he had this sort of yearning for Josephat. But I almost got the sense that Josephat was like, oh, my God, he's like, he's like right in my face. Like, is he... Is he gonna, you know, right. like, like, almost like, kind of miss it, like, or the part where he's like, oh yeah, well, I'll be back tonight, and this, this, and that, but like, almost oblivious of the fact that, like, oh yeah, if this this guy were gay and interested in me, he'd probably think I was coming on to him, right. but like, he, I never got that sense from uh, uh, Frieder, right? Because Frieder's always moving in, yeah. Jehoshaphat is not moving away, right? That's interesting. But yeah. What's also really interesting is I think the only kisses we see. And including the time he tries to kiss the girl at the beginning, whose name we never learn, and we never see again, are they're framed in a particular way, and he, you know, swings down with her and sort of holds her in his arms, and they kiss, and their faces are horizontal. Those every single kiss in the film, in that almost that like as long as the two characters are upright together, the scene is is aromantic. That's Uh interesting because. Because a kiss is a separate act in which you step and bend and and don't gotcha. stand in a conversational right. way. Yeah, right. You know, it's a completely distinct thing. And horizontal has a sexual connotation too. Right. That's sure. interesting. Like beast with two backs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but like, yeah, no, that, for sure. That, that you know, even because even he has scenes with uh, Maria where they just they talk right at all sorts of various distances, close and far. But the kisses are always. Zooms in, it's just shoulders up. He's holding her, and they bend over. Right. Mm. That could also say something too to the the power dynamic. You know, the the you know we kind of mentioned a little here and there is that the the two kisses that happen, it's it's man and, and woman, and it's the woman who gets put in the submissive position on her back as the man is coming over her to right. kiss her. But if this is two men, like who goes on his back? Right. You know, like so how how do we even do this? How is this even possible? If you know. How does one submit if they're both men, right. you know? But you can see, see there's an interesting... Like, the first kiss 
is Friedrich is on his na- knees and looking up at Maria. And Maria is telling him about the idea of the mediator. Mm. And she kisses down oh, at she him. Does? Oh, I it's not it's that. not it's kind of on the cheek, so it's more oh, okay. it's not, oh, right. it's a, not saint, a romantic it's a kiss. blessing of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, again, there's this almost this deity kind right, of Right, and it gets into that power dynamic. Because yeah. some of the most powerful figures in this film are women. The three that are in it. Like yeah. <laughs> I mean, because she is the well, there, there's workers. I see you trying to do the math, Scott. No, but who's the third? I, the the one at the beginning, in the the oh, um, the garden, oh, the garden of eternity. Sure. I was gonna say hell. No, hell, hell has a huge yeah. impact yeah. on it. Yeah. She's kind of got fridged, <laughs> right? But that's that's a comic book thing where uh, Green Lantern's girlfriend died in a fridge. And that gave him character development. Uh, that's that's the so Kyle Rayner Green Lantern, just yeah. to be clear, not yeah. the Hell Jordan. <laughs> or John Stewart, or Guy Gardner, <laughs> or Kilowatt. <laughs> just so we just so we know which. Just so we know which it was a lesser form in many ways. <laughs> just like the idea of that characterization for a male character by the demise of a female character yeah. is a negative trope that's been perpetuated by yeah, film yeah. and all these things. So the idea that. Um, Maria in both her roles as the automaton and as the prophet has a huge amount of power she's the one that riles everyone up she she has so much influence mm-hmm. and I mean she becomes th- uh, this. I'm going to get into the feminist criticism of this right now the idea that <laughs> when when Rotwag what's his name? Rotwang Rotwang is pursuing Maria to take her face and put it on the automaton. He, the way that pursuit is framed is he has a spotlight and he's toying with her. And it's almost a representation of the male gaze because it starts at her feet and as it moves up her body you get you get her facial reaction of it like violating her. Mm-hmm. And that toying with her is a very predatory, very fucked up. It's revelatory, you know. Yeah. She's she's hidden away in the darkness and then Right. And so he's pursuing, and he... He also corrals her, it looks like, too. Yeah. Yeah. He he moves her in different places, and, like... And then he literally objectifies her, turns her into an object, and uses her power... Because she had a huge amount of power as a prophet, and used that power for his own gain and for his own machinations. So it's, it's this... It's almost a feminist criticism because this is what a man does when it has power to manipulate women in this way. They realize the power of the woman as a symbol and as somebody who enacts within the film and twists it to their own... That's exactly what it is because the the doctor guy brings the executive down through the catacombs and shows him, look, Look they worship this woman. I can... You know, and then they, they come up with that plan to, we can take that power. Right. Turn her into a tool of ours. That's the thing, 1927, pretty <laughs> pretty woke film. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's nobody of color in it, which is a problem. Well, there's well, the people yeah. holding up the uh, the, the oysters that opens up Serious where she question. does her... Were those real people holding that? Or they, were they, were initially, the they, they were initially, and then they were the uh, Seven Deadly Sins took their places. Right, okay. Yeah. But like, I mean, were they actors used, or was the whole thing mannequin shaped? They pieces? they looked real. I don't. I could. I also didn't tell, know that the seven frank. deadly st- statues were real people. They looked like statues until they started to move. Move. Yeah. I love that sequence yeah. so much. I had forgotten about that. That's great. The idea of the the Grim Reaper 
swiping down and yeah. just oh, so so sinister and so cool. <laughs> sure. No CGI there. Just yeah. just so good. I also wonder too. Like I was starting to think, um, you know, the part how they they make the android version of Maria kind of look like this description of you know the the woman Babylon from the Bible. I think the whore of Babylon um, is what yeah, she's called, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. And, and and it was kind of interesting because it was like, well, is that just sort of like this self-fulfilling prophecy where it's not that the the the, the scourge of all mankind is a woman, it's uh, it's it's this these few men manipulating a woman and manipulating people's reaction to women right. to become this this scourge, you know, and that 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 was the thing. Like, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the actual Maria who was doing those things, and or that they, fit you know, into uh, Freder's role as the the knowledgeable deliverer because he knew of you know he could see those machinations creating a horde of Babylon mm-hmm. that he'd been warned about, right? And so he alone had the ability to see what you are doing is what's going to bring ruin, you know? Yeah, and not because of her, but because what just, you, because, because of what, what you're, you're doing, doing is just going to bring ruin. <laughs> you know, it's the, right. Well, that's the thing. If if they had the mediator to translate what they were trying to do with Maria, Mm -hmm. the idea of we want to continue this equilibrium, right? Mm -hmm. If he had been able to mediate that decision, how might it have manifested in a better way? Because he understands both sides, and he does that really quickly. We're meant to Mm -hmm. assume. So it's an interesting... That that's the example of the head having no idea how to communicate with the hands mm-hmm. and doing it to the detriment of both. You know, mm-hmm. I also like the idea. It's kind of like from um, the Everyman play. I can't remember the context of it, but there's an idea of like, as someone says in the thunderstroke struck, thunder does strike. So the the act, the protagonist of that play calls out the action and it happens happens, so it was similar in what uh frieder was saying what happens when the depths come and rebel Mm -hmm. and then the next thing is someone comes in and says here's these maps of these people and Mm -hmm. there's like the inklings of a rebellion starting yeah which is really interesting the idea of just calling it out it's a similar it's like a gesture like a vocal gesture that the idea of it's evoking the next plot point, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that line that his dad says about, he asked him, where are the people that built your <laughs> beautiful city? And he said, where they belong. Just cold-blooded as yeah. shit. Just like, no minced words. Mm-hmm. They let that guy off too easy at the end. Yeah. Like He doesn't get a handshake. He gets yeah. guillotined. Like, yeah. You know, that was, yeah, because I, if they had wanted to make him more sympathetic character from the start, maybe not more sympathetic, but less hateful, then his where they belong could have been sort of followed up in or, or reshaped to be where they are needed. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. He could yeah. have just been like, this is necessary. This is for this city to run. People must work the machines, you know, and, mm. and it could, See, have, and that's another... could have been a matter of humanizing them to <laughs> right. him. But instead, it's where they belong. Right, and that's a mistranslation, right? That's a a lost in translation. If you told the depths that that's what he said, (laughs) it doesn't work. It it wouldn't. That's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you get a little bit of humanity from him when he realizes that his son is down there when they're going to drown. Towards the third act, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's a 
too little, too late, yeah. for sure. Especially when you see the scores of children that would have drowned down there. How many... That, though, that sequence is really stressful and really claustrophobic and really well captured because you get the sense of the idea of that being a cavern. Those buildings and those homes are in this bowl that's slowly filling with water and it's kids. Mm-hmm. Like, how, mm-hmm. like, so, so poignant, mm-hmm. you know, watching that unfold. And, Even, and I like that there's... I won't say blame, but like when the workers do get whipped up into their fervor to go destroy the machines, it brings ruin upon themselves. That there's this sort of general condemnation of of such rash, fiery violence, mm-hmm. and and from both ends, you know, there's he's trying to you know goad them into doing it, right. so that they become the villains. There's no communication, right? It's like, sort of, that's the know, whole point. Like, it's it's there's no dialogue there's no protest with an idea towards dialogue being the thing to fix it's it's fervor and it's revolution mm-hmm. which sometimes works i mean <laughs> didn't work for them though no. i wonder I was, I was thinking back to that that line about where they belong mm-hmm. like how much of that maybe could also be um you know a perspective thing you know cuz like maybe a sense of belonging is like like yeah that like where they are needed which is which i i understand where that's like warm and and fuzzier but it it kind of could be taken the same way sure like they you know they are the workers the workers belong where the work is needed which is down below where the machines are so again like and i mean yeah again like we look at that as like oh what a dick but but i think that you know maybe the it could be said that the character doesn't mean it in a shitty way to have found your place where you belong right right? you know such a valuable you know or like (laughs) getting mr glass vibes there right there's nothing worse than to know to not know your place in the world yeah yeah or it's like you know i was saying when we first started watching it you know the there's a definitely a very a very common sentiment in the world today is like well they should be lucky to have jobs right. you know it's like you know this sense of like oh that's where you belong is is working a job you know then that's it that's all you know and you know that that sense of you, you know and, and ignorance to what do you mean they want joy out of life you know that's right. not that's not what they're you know it's like you do your job so that society can function like that's that's it you know and right. so i think some people you know are just like so close that you know i always think about stuff like this with the the um john mulaney thing when he's talking about when he was working on snl with with uh, mick jagger right you know and like you know people who were that rich and famous like they don't they don't function the way other people do like he would be like diet coke and someone would have to bring him a diet coke he's like no one else no normal person could just do that you know it's but like these people that are just so used to being famous and having things handed to them they don't acknowledge that like oh wait normal people i should ask for this like i should maybe make eye contact with someone and say can you please bring me a coke i'm thirsty it's like no like i just say the word it's in my hand like you you guys don't get to do that too like you know or or yeah i get to do that i'm mick jagger you don't get to do that because who the fuck are you you know like so i think it's just like I think yeah I think it like warps your kind of whole sense of how the world works to a degree where you know even even things that to us sound like the dickish things it's just like yeah it's where they belong like you know why 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 wouldn't they want to be where they belong you well, the know? difference like, between malice and ignorance I suppose yeah right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. to put it gently sure yeah I also like the, I mean this none of this is subtle in its commentary or its <laughs> imagery and I, I I mean rightly so right like that it's early it's not trying to 
it's not a cinnamon or cinnamon sins cinema <laughs> sins fodder, right? You can't say that like the thing that's wrong with this movie is the moviness of it, right? Mm-hmm. So I really like the move where after the interaction with his dad and hears him say that about they where they belong, the curtains close, the glittering sitter E is there, and the curtains close and the room gets dark and it's like this representation of Frieder seeing his dad in the right light for the first time. (laughs) The idea that this glittering thing that he built, this great, wonderful place, is built on the darkness of this cruel treatment of these other people. It just, I I really like that visual a lot, because it's this huge, sweeping curtain that comes closed. It's it's cool. It's one of the least claustrophobic rooms that's been shot, because everything else is like, everything's stacked in the back room, Mm -hmm. like... It's it's spacious and there's nothing higher than it. You don't see any skyscrapers dwarfing that building. It's on top, like it, it's very visually succinct in the message that this is the top of the world, right? Another movie I thought of that really I think drew a lot from this was uh, Snowpiercer. Yes. Oh, I still haven't seen. Oh that. my oh, god! I wish the, I had. You and I are thinking uh, of the ending. So yeah, yeah. Well, just so picture picture sort of this: how we have like above ground and then tall buildings, and then just lay it on its but side. It's, and it's a train. train. You know? yeah. yeah, I know the premise. Yeah. It's spectacular. You gotta see it. I know. It. I know. I just there's I have to see so many things. That's true. This this one's worth a watch for sure. Mm-hmm. I Snowpiercer's incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think we should move on to Joel's? Uh... Favorite? My favorite oh. segment? Well, wait, I had a few other <laughs> oh, ones, too. Please. I, well, no, please, so I don't want I have many up. more notes, well, okay. Scott. <laughs> well, I was also going to say, because... So I, I thought... <laughs> We're going to do that off camera from now on. <laughs> Just dramatic expression. Just dramatic clutching of your, your left breast. Um, I also love that about, sorry, when she's the whore of Babylon. Like, mm-hmm. she's just... Pulling her tits apart the yeah. whole time, like this. Yeah, she Ripping becomes a sex symbol. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, well, yeah, because her shirt is like this. These two pieces that are like laced together, yeah. and she keeps pulling like the yeah, the yeah. lacing apart. Yeah. Um. But so so this was kind of back to our discussion about the silent films, I, and I feel like I talked about this in another podcast. So again, I apologize. But when I first started watching the movie uh, Apocalypto, yeah. um, which wasn't silent, but. I remember like thinking like, oh, did he just like shoot this whole thing using this language and provided no subtitles, but it's being told through the actions. And I remember uh, being uh, like, uh. yeah, okay, I totally get what's going on. Then realized like I hadn't turned on the subtitles, but you can watch it without subtitles. And I, I kind of wished I hadn't turned them on and just sort right. of see like, can mm-hmm. I, but like I watched for like, I think 20 minutes of just like, okay, yeah, I get what's going on, you know, because they're talking to each other and they're... But, but it was very expressive in their gesturing, it's you know. It's suspicious that they the, weren't on by default. Right, exactly. Like, yeah. that's what it's meant to be Yeah, watched. like, I mean, how many other films that have but foreign then, languages... in that case, they, why were they provided at all? Yeah. Because there's that film I've talked about before, The Tribe, takes place in Ukraine entirely in sign language. And subtitles for that do not exist, mm-hmm. not in Ukrainian or in any language, right. ever, yeah. because yeah. that's the point. Yeah. Wow. So, like, with that... Were they off by default because that's the point? But then why were they made? Yeah. What, what, like, how do they want you well, to yeah, see the, the film? They did, like, uh, Return of the Living Dead has an, a subtitled track that's the zombies, right? So those are beings that do not speak, and all of the storytelling that's centered on them is visual. It's mm-hmm. all expressive. You can glean everything, but they have subtitles for them as an extra bonus. So just that... Yeah, yeah, it's a funny it. Easter. Yeah. yeah. But... 
but you know which so then that was kind of a segue for another discussion about the whole idea where George Lucas has said like and I forget if all of Star Wars or the prequels he intended them to be like silent films like that's kind of a lot of yeah that was that was one of the things that I heard where you know it was like the way like because of the way the visuals and the music is so important it's like they're meant to be silent films however it's just like well I'm gonna add this dialogue and like a way of like the dialogue I guess not being important and that was stylistically what he's going for so when you know when you have this you know i I almost wonder if it was just a way of explaining away clunky dialogue you know um (laughs) or robotic portrayals right but but that was that was something i remember i remember reading one time it was just like oh yeah like these are basically silent films that's how i envisioned it but then i added the dialogue for because people probably would have freaked out if nobody was talking like what the hell is this like I paid for a movie, not, you know, half of a movie. Right. You know? um, so just kind of like the way, and I guess if you guys had, I thought that was something that by now had become more common knowledge, so I don't know that uh, if you guys have thoughts on that. But, I mean, and I remember watching it again after knowing that and being like, okay, I can kind of see that, like that there is, like first of all, in certain scenes there are focuses, there, there's a lot of the dialogue-heavy scenes anyway. If you kind of pay less attention to the dialogue you kind of see more what's happening visually and kind of yeah i mean sometimes you wish the dialogue hadn't been there at all right. you know like um so i can see that definitely know, that, with attack of the clones the interactions between anakin and uh padme the idea yeah. of the dynamic of mm-hmm. them in conjunction with each other and the the way he touches her is super fucking creepy but the idea like without the dialogue of any of that you kind of get these intimate, sweet moments. Yeah. And I could see that for sure. And especially in the first one. The first one is this huge pageantry of Naboo and this idea of, like, the Galactic Senate. And it's all these big, huge visual pieces mm-hmm. that aren't really helped by the dialogue. Right. I, I, I could see that for sure. And that's a, I hate the idea of the... the hate's probably a strong word. But the idea of conceiving of the thing of the one way and then adding dialogue as an afterthought. Right. The idea that, well, just make the thing. Right. Like, you have enough goodwill. I mean, at that time he did. We would have been happy with anything Star right. Wars, right? Like, yeah. just how interesting a concept would that be? Yeah. And why did somebody mm-hmm. tell him, hey, no, you can't do that, but let him do all the other stuff? Like, you know, yeah. what, what was the... Yeah. Well, it was also the past of his story, so I feel like it would have shown a cool, like, progression of film. Oh. Um, also, I feel yeah. like it would have fit. Remember when we talked about the Clone Wars series and how you heard a theory that it was like they were supposed to be, like, propaganda films? That's why every. Or was that you that was having that conversation? I have definitely heard that theory, but I don't think I've spoken at all. I didn't. Oh, I thought I don't no. like it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I thought you had no, told me about that. I where, might have, yeah. Where it makes sense. <laughs> where they're like, oh, I'm Naboo and blah, blah, blah. You know, like that, 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 yeah. the narrator at the beginning. And that's, that's why it's such like yeah. a cartoony it's, take it's on it. Like because it's like propaganda films slash like telling your children the heroic tales of the Clone right. Wars. Right. Which is why the, the clones are all good guys and right. the. the the enemies are comical in their ineptitude and there's a narration and uh, yeah. you know the Jedi are super powerful and right. yeah. I mean sure so I think it would have it would have been really cool like to set the the, the, the prequel films Almost at like a, a point reel, in, in like, the universe yeah. yeah where it was like oh so we haven't added sound to film yet I think it would also add cool. <laughs> to this nice effect of by the time we get to episode 4 which happens after 3 
you know, it's okay. Well, now, yeah, we're getting into the '60s and '70s era of, you know, because I think that was even it when he made that one. He was definitely referencing a lot of older films from probably like the '50s, '60s, '70s, whatever. Yeah. So Flash it's like, Gordon, yeah. yeah, you know, you're kind of, you know, the whole thing is supposed to be this kind of homage for the films of the past, you know. So to kind of go back and do the prequels, but then be like make them so cutting edge but without any reference of the farther past you know like that would have been the perfect way to do it you know like yeah these are going to be silent films because you know if if, if these films are represent are, are referencing like the 60s and 70s and maybe even the 50s these films are going to represent the 20s you know and they'll, they'll be you know i mean i'm glad they were in color and you know i don't know that right. i would have wanted them to be like in black and white and everything but the balls um, to have done that though like to to say okay here's a new star wars it's silent. <laughs> yeah, well, and here's the thing too, like, like with you know having John Williams doing the music and how much everybody like he's he's you know a household name. Probably, I mean, yes, he's done other stuff, but I feel like most people may not know John Williams because may not know that he did like Indiana Jones and all this other stuff. But they they probably know him from Star Wars right. at least. If there's one thing they know him from, it's Star Wars. You know. So, like, you've got the composer who's going to do the score who can take the place of any dialogue you might have here. Like, yeah, like, fucking do it. You know? the, thing, like, the, fi- the, the final lightsaber battle doesn't need dialogue at right. all. It, it, the, story, yeah. it's, yeah. the story is the score. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. So it'd be cool if, like, they had... And that like, happens in episode three as well. Like yeah. The, fight was. the yeah. magma one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could have totally done that too, where it's just like see Obi Wan screaming and then do cut to it. You were the chosen one, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and you get all of the emotion from. I mean, because Ewan's a fucking incredible actor. Like, oh my god, he is. And I credit to him, but also to the choreographers to in equal parts. He is so so much in control throughout that fight with Anakin, yeah. like, even though he's the one backing up. He's yeah. directing and guiding, and he's the less. And he's in control the way a Jedi would be. Right. You know, it's he's rolling never with pressing. the punches, flowing yep. with the with the river, right? Yeah. God, uh. if the, if there's one person who's unscathed from that, it's you and McGregor. Obi Wan Kenobi uh, uh, is uh, uh, perfect uh, uh. through all. People of those. are still begging for a Kenobi film. Yeah, Kenobi yeah. and Star Wars. I'm one of those people. Yeah. I, oh man. No, that's really yeah, and that's the great part. He's at a perfect age too, where like you could still he's do still something that takes place in between, you yeah. know. And he's awesome. Oh, I love <laughs> the, the subtitle for this podcast is "Eventually We'll Talk About Star Wars." <laughs> like it's been the, the the Matrix will get in there, but I feel like the last six episodes have yeah all roads devolved, lead to Star Wars. All roads lead to Star Wars. Well, at least, and that was the thing, I tried to at least narrow this in on, because I think it was the only thing I heard it referring to specifically were the prequels. Right. So, like, okay, just talk about one, two, and three. Right. You know, <laughs> not open the door to all of them. You know, but how, how does, yeah. I'm still waiting for something R-rated out of the Star Wars world. Yeah. That, and not, like, for the sake of it, but just, like, a Clone Wars TV series, but not the animated for right. kids, but, like, a band of fat brothers, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, something that... We got a one scene of that in Solo, that war scene when he's in the on military yeah. there, which was like, oh, I want a whole film of that. I've wanted something like that forever. I feel like Rogue One was pretty close. It was it was on the way. It was I think that, that final thing. battle sequence is that, that's, yeah. yeah yeah it was on the way yeah, yeah. I, you want a trenches level yeah like, I want yeah. a real yeah so I mean I will we'll see they Disney's branching out a bit uh, yeah. I don't Johnson know if the, has his trilogy. 
Yeah, but I don't know what the um, the Mandalore's series is going to yeah, be. Yeah, we'll see. And and it's then Favreau, I mean, to be so fair, RR, but most of the um, most of what Star Wars has done, all the main films and everything, and then plus in keeping with Disney being Disney, they like to keep things not far. Yeah, you know. No. So I, I we'll see. But I don't think anything's really suffered. No, no, for it. not at all. Right. Just that there are these other stories that I want to see no, that sure. would require it. I think the closest one would probably be Empire. There's some pretty heavy shit in Empire. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like the great thing about cauterized wounds is they don't bleed <laughs> unless you're the first guy from the yeah. cantina in New yeah. Hope. Before we lock that down. <laughs> so just back one last thing I wanted to talk about yeah. with this film was. When the uh, Georgie, the guy that he switches places with, yeah. goes up, he gets an ad flies into the car, and he reads it for the like the casino, the the casino nightclub that he mm-hmm. goes in, and then a flurry of advertisements pours into the car, and you get this montage of like advertisements of like the glitz and the glamour of all this stuff. It's yeah. like it's a fucking pop up ad, <laughs> like it just was. It was interesting to see that idea of like consumerism, because mm-hmm. before that, what he experienced was you work, you go home, you work, you go home, and then yeah. you die. That's he all you suddenly covered in this luxurious, excessive money's coming out of the freaking seats. Literally pulls money out of the seats, and he's just bombarded with all of these things yeah. he's never imagined. He's like, what to do with leisure? What to do with money? And just, I thought it was really interesting. Co- kind of consumerist commentary the idea of like here's all the wonderful things you can do with the money that you've earned from the things that you were doing like yeah. and just something so foreign to him being in the machine he world he was a great character he, did, he was he, he, you know, faithful Freder, after Freder, all exactly Freighter gives his clothing you know switches with him and he gets distracted he forgets his role right you know his job he, he goes off and does rich stuff he gets apprehended. He gets sent back to the to the workers' city. Oh, okay, and then when it really counts, and it, they showed us a few shots of him several times yeah, no, he's throughout in the there. melee yeah. when the crowd is trying to kill Freighter, right. and Freighter's fighting them off, and, and Freighter's buddy, the Jehoshaphat guy, gets knocked out, you know, in his defense, right. and and we see we see uh, Georgi, Georg, however you say it, and um. And he, his, he's not happy. He's the one man right. who is not in the mob. He's trying to get to Freighter. And he's trying, and he's trying, and they're getting on. And finally, we see a knife. And the knife goes, and he, he makes it. And he covers him, and he, yeah. he gives his life. He remembers, you know, he remembers the kindness. At point. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, he's the martyr. Oh, that was like, because I'd forgotten about him. Yeah. He gets told off, okay, go home. Forget this all happened. And that's it. We don't see him again at all. Any right. hint of him for the rest of the film until that last scene right there. And yeah. that was beautiful. Yeah, I sometimes people like to say, "I wish there was more characterization for this person," and what they mean is more on screen time. Right. But in that case, more on screen time, I think, would have hurt that character. I don't think we need it anymore. No. You know. Yeah. Like, for sure. That was good. The the actress who plays Maria. Yeah. Is wow. Fucking okay. spectacular. Oh my gosh. Just that's just lay the film on your shoulders. You know. I mean. Yeah. She. I mean, she carried like. Yeah. She. She's not the main character, but she's kind of the main character. <laughs> yeah. Her she's, robo she's skin is the, on the fucking <laughs> cover, you right. know? Like, she's... The switch yeah. is so good, because you see sequences where the real one is being compassionate and saving the children, and then it juxtaposed to the whore of Babylon with 
Her eyebrows so and good, yeah. the, the the you really tell with the makeup because she's got eyeshadow that's mm-hmm. darker and that but like her face contorts her body contorts she becomes this serpentine this, this robot yeah robot, this real sex robot. robot like this and she's so good and <laughs> when she's when she's down in the the uh, underground the catacomb cathedral and she's egging everyone on and they're just like eating out of the palms of her hands and she's moving from side to side and just making humanity swell and it, it's so good like see that would have been a cool thing to actually see on stage where you like she that one actress has to play dual roles so like she's in the middle of the stage and then they light up one side and you see her yeah. doing that and the mob of people on this side and then they shut those lights off and open over here and she has to turn and be the nurturer right. come on kids I'll help you get out of here yeah. and like just switching watching her switch like she's always on the spotlight but then it's like Okay, we're illuminating. This is this version of her. This is the other version. That'd be you know, so great. that would have been amazing. So, I mean, you kind of saw that in the film. I mean, she wasn't acting it that way, right. leaping back and forth. But like, the cuts you get to see, back, yeah, back and forth, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, to see that, you know, like kind of. I mean, you know, for those of you who saw, you know, Split and or Glass, like watching James McAvoy do oh, that, it was man. a very similar sort of right. thing. Yeah. You know? Also makes me think of Bronson with the face paint. Oh yeah, the, the <laughs> yeah. nurse and then yeah. him. Yeah. The idea of playing both those sides. She's just, just great. I, I, I love watching her. I had forgotten about that performance. But how could you, though? That I can't believe I did because she's so compelling and drives so much of the film. Like, mm-hmm. so good. So good. So good. <laughs> well, they do such a good job, too, at the beginning because, like, when, when he's first with this other woman in the garden you know you definitely get this sense of like okay he doesn't know who she's there but she's yeah, there to that entertain him which of you lovely ladies right. is going to entertain him today? has the pleasure has of, the pleasure yeah. of right. doing that yeah. and then and then when maria comes in she's like this very modestly dressed like she's the school teacher and you're like oh she's was so, about you know, to go in for the kiss yeah. with his entertainer for the day when maria walks in and i for the moment i thought it was the film would be newer than it was and he would just like Drop. drop her, plop. <laughs> like, yeah, but, but he didn't, you know. Right. But it definitely portrays that kind of just complete shift in focus. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but, his hand goes straight to his heart. Like mm-hmm. it's like it's all it's the humanity's being activated in it in him, <laughs> but it's also love, and it, that yeah. gesture conveys so much, yeah. especially at that early point in the film. Mm. But you know, but but like how much he's he's drawn to the sort of. I guess, for lack of a better term, more maternal aspect yeah. of her, and away from this person who was meant to kind of be kind of an object, you right. know. But then to like to have you know her that actress do this completely overly sexualized version of that character yeah. Yeah. for the horror of Babylon, and to and you know also to sell that too, where it's like like oh man, like I never would have imagined that this person is capable of those movements right. and 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 those type of things. It was just like holy, you know. It was, Kind of, it, you know, kind of, it also reminds me a little bit of the, the the conflict in Black Swan, you know, where it's like, mm. okay, you're good at this swan, the the white swan, but you also need to be the black swan and helping her, you know, kind of tap into those things. And so it was just interesting to see to see that duality, you know. And, mm-hmm. That's the thing, like she's essentially playing three roles in it because she's also a stand-in for Hell, right? Like for oh, yeah. for the mad scientist and for Joe, like yeah, they, they see her as this symbol of this. This love that's gone, woman onto her, yeah. and painting her as a maternal figure also has that energy because mm-hmm. Joe never or uh, Frieder never grew up with a mother, right. hasn't yeah. had a maternal 
hand in his upbringing at all. So there's yeah. little edifice. compassion for children that right. she shows from the get go. Right. Yeah. Mm. It's a good film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for showing that to us. Thank you yeah. for watching I, it. I was. I, I mentioned earlier, you know, it, it's one of those films that isn't necessarily famous if you haven't bothered to try to look into film at all. But at the moment you do, it gets talked about constantly. Right. And I, yeah, I just have I've needed to see this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. I think we can now move on to my favorite segment. Uh, okay. <laughs> We're going to put it in here. It is, it is time for <laughs> another <laughs> situational movie recommendations. recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, situational movie recommendations. I have one that's pertinent to the film. Hey, what is your pertinent. favorite foreign language film? Oh, Get Out. <laughs> can't answer this question. Get Out it's is, over is in English. Language. Podcast <laughs> is over. I can't answer this question. I, no. Um, ooh. Ooh, Joel. Ow. Part of me want to say wants to say that this is kind of up there now because I haven't seen That's a ton funny. of them, and I mean most of the ones I have seen. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess you could you consider this a foreign language film? Yeah, they're speaking German, but I mean, like we're not hearing them speak German, and right? Then when oh, the, when no, we're I given see what the, you mean. The panel, you know, it's it's like, been translated. I mean, you're reading captions yeah. of a language you can't understand. Yeah. They are speaking it, but I, I, I will allow that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's part of why this is this would be added to one of my favorites because it's like, oh yeah, I didn't have yeah, to interact with them. I mean, Lahaine just really resonates, but we've talked about that to death. Uh, M holds a close place in my heart, okay. for sure. Um, just my love of noir and M acting as a sort of precursor to that genre, mm-hmm. and, and then for all the studying I did on it and its connections to to the interwar years and I've always had a keen hobbyist interest in the world wars so I mean it just hits all in right notes gotcha. um, but I'll and I, I'm sure there are a few dozen that I've seen and I'm forgetting about and would immediately go oh yeah uh, Goodbye Lenin comes to mind okay. and we haven't seen it we will watch it on the podcast so I won't go into too much detail it's a German film um, a Cold War film which uh, there was this sort of sudden like Oh, that I had when I was studying German film in Europe about, we talked about the war, the interwar years, sure. We talked a lot about divided Germany because a lot of film dealt with divided Germany. And it was the first time that it struck me, really struck me, wait a second, they were divided for like 50 years. <laughs> Almost. You know, they were getting there. Um, that's a long time. As in, of course, much longer than either of the world wars or the interwar period. And that, like, most of our popular culture focus on Germany here is on the world wars mm-hmm. but that German history in terms of people's experiences divided Germany is much bigger gotcha. um, and I had that moment of like well no shit like 1945 to, to when the walls came down 1988 uh, I think I, you know like wow <laughs> of yeah. course I just, it sort of hit me and we spent a lot of time talking about divided Germany in film but uh, Goodbye Lenin is um, it takes it's a, it's a dark comedy as only German comedy can be so dark, um, which is what makes it Schwab so and good. Freud. And it's it's a, it takes place towards the end of towards the reunification, and um, our little precursor is this young boy, and he wants to be a, a cosmonaut, and uh, his father eventually get go escapes to the West, and the plan is to bring the rest of the family over, but instead they never hear from him again. 
um, and his mother becomes very much involved with the East, with the, the, the DDR, the East German country. Um, GDR in English, German Democratic Republic with East Germany, politically and socially, but especially socially as a sort of community leader, as the, the organizer who gets them to, you know, to get, you know, to get better pantyhose for the women because they're not suitable for winter and the, the community, the community head. Mm-hmm. She's very involved and has this love of her, her sort of lo- locality. Um, and it's, it's presented very well, very, you know, real people dealing with these problems and less about the global politics. Um, so then we fast forward the kids' early 20s and um, now, you know, Germany is getting its way to reunification. Uh, he wanders himself into a uh, reunification protest when police show up and, you know, start cracking down. And his mom sees him and has a heart attack. Um, and she oh, passes wow. out and goes into a coma. And then while she's in her coma, Germany reunifies. The wall comes down, one Germany. And then she wakes up. And there's this glorious scene in the, the, the office of the East German doctor who'd been working with his mom. As he's packing up his stuff and the office is being dismantled. And he says to him, any, uh, you know, because of the heart attack and the recovery, you want to make sure things stay calm when she remains in bed. And any particularly severe shock could be enough to cause another heart attack. And our main character just sort of stares at him for a, fu- a few seconds and then goes, you mean like the knowing that the country she loved doesn't exist anymore? <laughs> and, and so he and his sister and the nurse and his other friend uh, put her mom in her bedroom, which where she'll be for a while, you know, she's very weak. And they just, they fake everything. They pretend the GDR still exists. Huh. They make fake news broadcasts. They make oh, fake wow. newspapers. He takes the labels off the old food and puts it on the new West German food. And so the whole thing is this this comedy of them scrambling to pretend Germany is still separate, but it's all cloaked in this very somber, you know, discussion of what you do for the people you love and what's right for them against to keep you from your own grief and back and forth. And it's that I I can't that's another film with feelings that I can't use words for in so many ways. So we will we'll get to that. Don't worry. <laughs> so Tim Apocalypto wouldn't be your no. Choice? I actually thought of one though. Yeah. But I also wanted to first make the joke that that must have been the movie that Fifty First Dates was based on. I was gonna <laughs> say the same <laughs> damn thing. See, I haven't seen that, so I uh, don't bother. Know. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, it's, it's kind of funny. Just rewatch you know. Goodbye Lennon again, and <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, it was imagine it with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Um, and dating. Yeah. But uh, um, hero. Ooh, oh, hero's good. Yeah, see how I was going. I'm sure I'm forgetting you something. Because that's the thing man. is, like, I was at first, yeah. you know, you're kind of thinking of all like the quote unquote intellectual foreign films, <laughs> and then it, then I kind of thought, well, wait, like kung fu films. Like, oh, okay, of all the kung fu films I've seen, <laughs> right? right? And I, I don't know that I would necessarily call it a kung fu film because it's it's wuxia you know, for sure. Yeah, like, it's, 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 yeah, but I mean, like, you know. It's in that House of the Flying Daggers. If Man. Yeah. yeah. Right. But, like, um, I feel like, you know, there were some films that it's like, okay, we want to have a bunch of kung fu, let's write a story to weave this stuff together. Right. As opposed to here is this, this story that's unfolding, and this kung fu is going to take place at raid. certain, you know, certain Two, points. For more. Um, but anyway, like, just, the, you know, and, and I think it's funny, too, and, and this is probably an unfair way to um, to classify this, is I feel like the, the foreign films, to me, are better that I don't notice it's a foreign language, you know, or I've, I've forgotten that yeah, it's like, right. oh, yeah. immersion is so you know, complete. And, and that's definitely one of them because, like, when, you know, kind of like what we were saying, like, with the, the, the theater and the, and the silent film, all of the dialogue is kind of presented in these moments where everything is very still. 
So you're not feeling like you're missing everything by reading like, okay, okay, yep, next, okay, and now we're going to fight. And then the fight is happening and you can just watch the fight without being like, oh shit, they're talking while they're fighting. So I've got to read these words down here and try to still yeah. catch all this cool choreography. It's like, you know, whenever there's dialogue, it's like there'll be a pause in the fight. Yeah. Like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and we fight, Ooh. you know. <laughs> and so, I mean, just the, the, the fact of how, how the dialogue functions when you're trying to read subtitles, I thought, was, was very, very palatable. Right. Um, but then on top of that, you know, you know, and also speaking of films that could possibly be a silent film, you know, I feel like, yes, there's a lot of story, but again you could have had these cut scenes where, okay, here's what's going on in this scene. You know, he's going to see the emperor and he's talking about this and blah, 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 blah. Okay, now we'll go on, you know. I feel like there were there were a lot of parts where the dialogue wouldn't have need, needed to be spoken. It could have been presented on the side, you know, which it kind of was because of the subtitles, you know, underneath. Um, but, but then, you know, aside from just, quote, unquote, dealing with the dialogue, just like how visually spectacular everything right. was and how... Um, I also remember, like, that when it came out, it was after Crouching Tiger. Right, which is huge. Like, it was a yeah. huge crossover hit for Jet Li. Well, and it was, but then so many people were so angry because they didn't get it. Because, why are people running on the trees? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I feel like with, with Hero, it was also, like, first of all, we had already been introduced to that right. sort of storytelling and mm-hmm. that fantastical, you know. But I feel like if Hero had happened first... It seems so much more obviously fantasy, you know, and because the, it's the stories being told, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as the opposed framework. to oh, here are these two regular people. Like, yeah, I've seen kung fu before. I've seen ninjas. Right. I wait, they're running. Out. Like, it just it was yeah. placed into real life. Whereas, yeah, whereas this, it was very much the part of the, the storytelling. Helped, yeah, helped suspend so, that disbelief. Yeah, like you accepted everything that was happening because it was part of a story someone was telling, um, and just like the use of color and how so much of that stuff, like it was mm. just like. You know, it was definitely, it was almost that that part of the strength was it wasn't trying to immerse you. It was trying to make you realize you were watching a film, but the most, probably one of the most goddamn beautiful films you've ever seen, you know. Like so many of the, like when they're fighting in the woods and there were the trees with all like, I think, is it, they're wearing red, but the leaves are yellow. And there'd be those moments where just like, you just get the leaves blowing everywhere. And it's just like, like, yeah, there's no reason to be doing this except that it looks so fucking gorgeous you know and it's not like anything about plot development at that point you know it's that just was... like just look at it because it's beautiful and that's okay right. it's yeah. okay for it to just be beautiful you know and that film was Lee or one of the most expensive films in China ever made oh wow ever made in the country at, at the time if it wasn't the most it was one of them it was real wow. close <laughs> I keep thinking of the arrow sequence where it's yeah. the calligraphy school and just oh yeah <laughs> oh, like mm-hmm it's like a black cloud descends upon the location. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I have two fun ones and a real one. Um, <laughs> is one of them Shin Godzilla? You're goddamn right it All is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's perfect. I love yeah. that movie so oh, much. Yeah. Would not have seen it if not for the pot. Well, we probably would have watched yeah. it. but. Um, and then uh, Ong Bak is a oh. Muay Thai uh, yeah. Tony Ja film. You keep talking to me about that, and we just haven't got to it's it yet. It's so good. I think it's on Netflix or Hulu. I probably should it, just watch it. Yeah. For a while, yeah. like, number three was on Netflix, but none of the others. Oh, Although yeah. I haven't checked in, in many sometimes. moons. Yeah, don't so. watch three without seeing two. Two and three are, like, the same storyline. Yeah. The first one is... They it's kind of do thing, a prequel yeah. type thing. The other two are good, but the first one is really fun because it's kind of like a... 
Seven Chambers style, where it's like all these fights culminating in a badass fight, and he's trying to rescue his uh, his village's uh, stone deity statue that's being sold for profit to uh, British colonizers. Like it's this whole commentary. It's classic kung fu storyline, yeah. but really compelling, really fun. Tony Jaws classic sort of folk hero yeah. thing going on. Yeah, Tony Jaws kick ass in it. And there's a great rickshaw chase sequence for some reason. Uh, <laughs> so then you're a serious one. So uh, Fitzcarraldo, which is a Werner Herzog film um, set in South America about getting into the um, is it sugar... It's harvesting something from plants. And it's all about this... Um, it, it's Klaus Kinski who played uh, Nosferatu in Werner Herzog's yeah. Nosferatu. He's very distinct looking, very terrifying, wild-eyed, crazy haired. He's almost what uh, um, Rotwang looks like. Um, and he, his whole... He's kind of this failed inventor and or has all these schemes that never go anywhere. He's never able to... Get, can get get to a successful place but he's very charismatic and he keeps getting these chances to do these things and it's all about him taking this um, river boat up the Amazon a different way that you're not supposed to go because the tribes in that section are very territorial and don't like anybody influencing them there and he makes it through and Finds so, because the way you're you're not able to cross this part of the land to this other part where you can grow the trees and stuff. So what they do is they take the boat and they pull it using s this huge pulley system up over this piece of land between the two s sides of the river because there's these rapids that you're not able to. I think cross. I've heard of that. It's it's. Is that it's the biggest movie prop of all time. Yes. Yes, yes. that's what I've heard of it. So they pull it, and they actually did it in it was, it was the real. movie. Yeah. Because they moved it over. And it, it's it's in German, because Werner Herzog is German, in, sure. and Klaus is German. And it's just really gorgeous, really atmospheric, really crazy to see them actually pull this thing off. And no CGI, no camera tricks. They had to find a way to move this massive boat. It's like like the, the gambling boats, like those fan boats. Oh, it's yeah, that yeah. size. Up, up this mountain onto the other side. And they managed to do it somehow. And it's just like really interesting and really compelling and cool. So that that's my pick. Cool. Damn, yeah. Eventually we will watch it. Yeah. That was a good one, Joel. And yeah, <laughs> relevant to our film. That's yeah. excellent. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, thanks for mm. watching Metropolis. Yeah, thank you for bringing it to us. So for episode 20... Next up, Scott. I, while we were watching Metropolis, I went back and forth on this and pulling an 11th hour switch, but I'm not going to. Uh, Dr. Strangelove. Ooh. Or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be watching a, a Kubrick film that Scott enjoyed. Yes! <laughs> I love this film so much. Um... 
provide a bit of a counterpoint. It'll still be in black and white, yeah. uh, but it'll have sound. It'll be old, but not that old. And it'll speak of a different time, to be sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, Metropolis deals with, you know, between the two wars and about horrors of the future and technology. And, you know, Doctor Strange Love is very much about the horrors that technology has brought on the present <laughs> instead of the future. Right. Um, it's called the Rare, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it's like on the brink of not war, but annihilation. Yes. And it's it's sort of a little bit of absurdist comedy about the whole situation. Not even a little. It's a lot. But then it's that. also, you almost can't call it absurdist because it was real. Because it happened, you know? <laughs> no fighting. This is the war room. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. A mine shaft gap. <laughs> so... So, Tim, have you seen? Uh, no. Oh, yeah, wow. it's going to be. Gonna I be think cool. you're going to really like Excellent. it, actually. Um, Peter Sellers and Peter Sellers. And Peter Sellers. And Peter Sellers. Um, and uh, I just, I'm so very much looking forward to that. So. Oh, that'll be a good one. I hope you guys will be. I uh, hope you guys will be entertained. It's been a minute since I've seen it too, so mm. it'll be good. So yeah, that'll be next time up. And, Sweet. Uh, until then, we hope you uh, enjoyed our discussion about Metropolis, and we hope you'll join us next time, listeners. And goodbye. Bye. Bye. Hey listeners, we appreciate you tuning in for our podcast. We're now available on iTunes if you'd like to check us out there. I'd be glad to have you subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, whether it's a comment, review, or anything else. You can reach us all through our official NerdsLitGeek emails, which you can find on the bio page at NerdsLitGeek.com. Or, if you can find us on social media, I'm on Instagram at Scott underscore W underscore Murray. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at JoelT18. And on Instagram, I'm the Tim Gerard, and on Twitter, I'm at Tim Gerard. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you'll come back for more.